Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I are back for a very long, very spoiler-filled discussion of Avengers Infinity War. Seriously, if you do not want to be spoiled, you have to skip the first 80 freaking minutes of this episode, or maybe come back to it after you've seen the movie, because we discuss the whole damn thing, soup to nuts. Also discussed in this two-and-a-half-hour episode, Dead Dead Demons DDDD Destruction by Neo Asano. The story is in DC Nation, issue number zero. Recent issues of Snagglepuss Exit Stage Left. You Are Deadpool, issue one by Al Ewing and Salva Espin. Brian Bendis on Superman, and believe me when I say this, much, much more. Comments on this episode are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. Send us your questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan, hello! How the devil are you? Well, you know, it, it, I'm so glad that you asked. I am I'm actually pretty <laughs> I, okay. I'm being, I'm being polite. Is that a problem? <laughs> <laughs> wow. You warned me I, about the I, surliness. I thought it was going to get more than 25 seconds of... Uh, no, no. I'm telling you, I'm in a weirdly bad mood today. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, this... Spring comic book day, fuckers. Uh, I know. Well, well um, yes, before we get into that... Let me just say that uh, I was—I just finished a meeting of the Comics Illuminati, and uh, the other member wanted to made a point to like wish you well. Um, so yeah, it, we're only two members, now, now I'm, but now I'm super excited who the other member of the Comic Illuminati is. Yes, I'm sure this is a reference I'm supposed to get. No, 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 and... no, no. I just made up that term. Oh, what's what's funny about this is I got a call from a. Uh, San Francisco number today that I don't recognize. And they didn't leave a voicemail for me. Uh, maybe we're so trying was, to get you in like, on the meeting. I was like, are like, where are you hanging out with like a mutual friend? And they called and I don't like have their number or something? Well, maybe, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, what is this kindness? <laughs> so, so what happened was um, one, of, one of the Wait What podcast votes for uh, Most Handsome Man in Comics, David Wolken was in town. And oh, so, David Wolken! So, you know I love David Wolken. Exactly, and he loves you too. And he, and he wanted, he's made it a point to say, like, make sure you tell Graham I say hello. And there were, there were some jokes about him, like, ending up as a guest on the podcast, because literally uh, we had uh, dinner last night, which was wonderful. And then uh, today, um, he basically just stopped by to, to drop some stuff off that I lent him. By the most amazing sort of like coincidence, he is Airbnb a uh, place that is literally right around the corner from us. So <laughs> when we were like, okay, so when I get home from work, uh, blah, 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 he's like, okay, where, where do you live? And I'm like, I'm at Bernal Heights. He's like, oh my God, I'm right here on Treat Street. I'm like, you are around the corner from me. That's insane. So... It was it was terrific. That is hilarious. Is yes. he in town for work? Uh, he is in town, I think, for his wife's work. She has she's got a conference. Um, they came out a little bit early to enjoy the the San Francisco ness of uh, San Francisco before um before officially having to start in with all the um less exciting but you know more work related uh, conference networking Exciting. stuff. Less exciting yet probably what 
paid for them to be there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I shouldn't really diss that sort of thing. Uh, so, yes, he said to say hello. He said that he thought that um, Secret Empire, uh, just the fact that uh, it ended up having <laughs> Rick Jones being put in front of a firing squad in issue one, to him was like, it just it's the comic event of the year as far as I'm concerned. That's like... <laughs> I thought was oh, man. hilarious. Shots fired literally. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. I was like, ow, ow, but also very funny. So, yeah. Uh, as you know, David's a completely uh, delightful guy, and uh, I had a I had a fine old time chatting with him. And it was pretty great because we're all um, – he and uh, his his lovely wife Keely and Edie and I were all sort of standing around, sort of excitedly talking in the apartment, and then all of a sudden Edie just sort of like like goes ramrod straight. And she's like, Jeff, the pod, it's seven, the pod, you're podcasting, pod, pod, podcast, and I'm like, no, no, it's totally okay. Graham and I talked. We're we're starting a little late. She was like, oh, oh, you know, and then gave me one of those like you jerk when she told me looks, you know, but. It was uh, it was good. It was good. <laughs> good times were had, you know. Oh, there, good. <laughs> there was lively debate, and I managed to come out the heel in the whole situation, which was uh, That's terrific. Always a oh, Jeff, you've just reminded me something I have to tell you, and you're going to be really upset. All right, did I tell last week? I don't think I did. <laughs> okay, hold oh, on. Can't... One second. Okay, please tell me. That was. I really hope that shows up in the podcast. I could hear that, and I really hope that shows up. Um, Roman Candle, the pizza place here in Portland. Yes. Did I tell you about it? It. Uh, no. No. I clearly didn't. If you don't, if you're not responding the way you should respond, Jeff, they've stopped making pizzas. What? Oh, those idiots! Why? What? For, for the for the best worst reason ever. No. Wadnot's Roman Candle Baking Company is the name of the, the, the restaurant. And they make pizzas that Jeff and I adored. Like, they, they, would, when Jeff would come to town, we would yeah. make a point of going to Roman Every Candle. Every time. And it was we fabulous. loved their pizzas mm-hmm. so much. And they did lots of other things that we really adored. Yeah. Um, and about a year and a half ago, they said, we're not going to be open in the evenings anymore. You know, when people might want to eat pizza. Yes. Because our baking, the baking side of our business is so successful in selling to third parties that we're going to close at four o'clock every evening and bake for other people. Right. And you remember this because last time you were here, we had breakfast. Yep. Remember? Mm -hmm. And so we went for breakfast and it was great and everything was good. (laughs) This is going to sound like a joke and I swear it's not. Roman Candle Baking Company has now become a vegan gluten-free restaurant. Oh, for God's sakes! <laughs> what? Yes. Graham, yes. I... Uh, I swear I to God. This, I discovered this by going in to look for pizza. I think, like, cause I knew they did uh, Because they closed down for a week and they, they literally changed the physical space. And I went in after they reopened, and I was like, oh, like, everything's different. I don't see the pizzas. And I say to the woman behind the counter, yeah, are, are you still doing pizza? And she's like, no. And she seems embarrassed no. to say it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, and because. I'm like, oh, I'm like mm-hmm. what happened? Mm-hmm. Bear in mind, the door still says pizza in big letters on it. Of course. Of course it does. 
Anyway, I, I, she's like, I'm like, what happened? And she goes, well, we're actually a lot more plant-based now. And I was like, okay. And she goes, and we've gone vegan and gluten-free. And I actually have to stop myself going, you're a fucking bakery. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Ah, uh, well, you know, God bless. That's the kind of thing that, um, you know, has allowed Portland to, to, to wrench the title from San Francisco of uh, most easy, most difficult city to actually parody anymore. Uh, so well done, well done. And you know, it might work out for them. I, I like the thing that's great is is that such a sudden turn. I can't help. Oh, it's such a sudden turn. That I can't help but imagine that somebody had some sort of you know vegan gluten free version of a religious experience. You know exactly. what I mean? Well, apparently, and I because. Uh, I may or may not have told you this the last time we were there. My the local pet store was right across the road, uh-huh. and so the next time I go in to get food for the dogs, I'm like, "Please tell me you're as upset that Roman Candle is now vegan and gluten free as I am." And two women in there are both like, "They're going to go out of business. It's the worst idea I've ever had." <laughs> like, they're appalled. <laughs> and I was like, "Thank you." And one of them says, um, "And the owner is now there all the time." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he keeps on talking to people about how this is such a good thing. Yeah. And we were both, we were all like, yeah, that's that's a sign that you know he suddenly just came to this decision by himself, and everyone else thinks it's a terrible idea. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. O M G. Uh, that yeah, is that shocking, shocking heel turn. Talking about yes, <laughs> shocking heel turn by a restaurant. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I, thinking about the owner, this is what I discovered. That place is actually owned by the guy who created Sumptown, who sold it to Pete's Coffee, I think. Whoever yeah, sold it to. That's, um, is it Pete's? I don't think it is. I that, feel like it's a separate whoever, brand. Whoever Sumptown was sold to. I think it might have been Starbucks. I think it might have been Maybe. Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think. Okay, mm, I I look, look it up. Oh, here we go. Sold to, no, Pete's. Pete's oh, Coffee and Tea. I'll be a son of a bitch. Okay, I did not realize that. Okay, fascinating. Uh, yeah, that's, um, that is, that is crazy pants. Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, these are, these are the things, these are the things that people it, go mean, through, really, right? What, what the hell? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, did you see that thing that was going around the, uh, like, couple of, like, maybe like a month or two ago that was the profile of, um, Dave's Killer Bread, uh, uh with Dave oh. Dahl? Yes, there there was a great little piece about sort of Dave Dahl and his amazing sort of rags to riches to not really rags because he's still rich, but like the very kind of the difficulty that he had after, you know, essentially becoming kind of a, a mega millionaire and and more or less like, you know, um just not being able to handle it because he was he was a guy who of course had ended up um basically in prison for years and had just been like the black sheep of the family before coming back and getting sort of his last chance working at the the family bakery and then of course ending up like becoming obsessed and creating all these new brands of bread that became famous and they made millions and millions of dollars and then of course you know, just a lot of 
he just had had the kind of life where it's like it was probably better back when he was being obsessed about bread. Anyway, it, it as you know, that's based up in Milwaukee, Oregon, and it's it's a pretty amazing profile that I'll have to hunt up. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have to look for it because it sounds very interesting. I have to tell you, Jeff, I was listening to the latest episode of House Astonish yes. today in, in the middle of doing everything, uh-huh. and there's this great moment where in the middle of their their you know, roundup of what's happening in the comics news. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Kennedy is just like, let me tell you about this Canadian donut baking show. <laughs> and Paul's, Paul's like, ah. like, you know, we haven't done an episode in two months. He's like, people have waited two months for this. And Al goes, they waited two months, three more minutes, is it going to kill them? And I feel that we have just, by like spending 10 minutes talking about like a mutual friend visiting San, uh, San Francisco. Oh, yes. A bakery. Yes. Uh, changing, making a bad business decision. We're, we're doing well in the uh, diversionary tactics of podcasting tonight. Yeah, completely. Completely. On the plus side, they really didn't have to wait that long for this. So, I mean, you know, I can sort of see, and let's face it, you know, it's... So we've we have we have the freedom to go there. I mean that's the the sad but honest truth. But Graham, we have so much to talk about, which is we kind do? of interesting. Yeah. Well, I think we do because on the one hand, I was tasked with seeing Avengers: Infinity War, and so to the extent that people really still care about this thing, considering it's been a week, we can have a completely like. All spoilers all the time. Give everything away to talk about the movie uh, in let, depth let's, cinematic dive. Let's. Although I want to start off by saying it's so funny you say if anyone still cares because it's been a week. Isn't it nuts this film's been up for a week and it already feels like old news? Yeah. I mean, I, old news adjacent. Like, everyone's still talking about it because, and I can say this firsthand, Avengers is still so like driving so much traffic on the internet. It's insane. Yeah, I believe it. It's insane. But the the flip side of this is you, you now see the sites that went really heavy mm-hmm. with Avengers stuff like I, I, around its release mm-hmm. um, either drop off, which is basically what THR is doing, or scrape the bottom of the fucking barrel in order to keep having Avengers stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was I saw I can't remember where it was. I saw one that was basically like, why does Thanos have a chin like that? <laughs> and I was like, what? Holy shit! Yeah, like that—that's that, a thing. Yeah, like, like how did you manage to get a story out of that? And and and, and as you know, Graham, because you're the professional, like someone was like, "We need a story." They were desperate, oh, yeah, no, and no, someone no, I, went, I, "Sure, I, go with it." You know, I have to tell you, uh, uh, an outlet, and I won't name who, came to me this week, and they're like, "Have you got another Avengers story in you?" <laughs> <You're> <laughs> and I was like. I don't think so, but leave it with me. And I, I pitched like three things, and they were like, "Yeah, all of these are bad." <laughs> <laughs> now, and I was honestly so relieved. I was so relieved. Can can you, since since the, in theory, I would assume they're dead. Can you tell us what those pitches were? I honestly don't remember, but they weren't oh, that much stronger. Oh man! Then Thanos in his chin. No, yeah. they, they actually were. They they were. I mean, they were super thin, but it was very much like. Um, Except uh, by this point, the Atman trailer had come out. Oh, right, which I haven't seen. And there, and there was a lot of uh, like um, how do these movies tonally relate to each other. Um, has one of them was more or less has Marvel fucked itself by trying to have movies after Infinity War? Huh. 
does Mar- like because Infinity War is just like so like everything, yeah, everything. And then you have Ant Man come out, and I said this in THR. You have Ant Man come out, and Ant Man's like, it's a jolly holiday, da, 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 da. <laughs> like look, it's it's fun adventures, and here's like a pest dispenser, but it's giant, right? And it's like this is like the t- the tonal uh, uh, distinction between these two movies is is vast, mm-hmm. which I think Marvel sees as like a plus, right? So like, yeah. look at her right, but. Like, releasing a week after Infinity War comes out? Or really, it came out, like, three days or something after Infinity War came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, just felt super weird. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wait, did half of everyone not just die? Right. Like, are we, are we really, your next trailer is like, waka, waka, waka. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, like, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, of basically, like, is Marvel kind of, like, can you really do another Avengers film after Infinity War? Like, have you not gone so big that you're kind of fucked? Oh, you mean the the conclusion a year from now, or do you mean no, like no, I literally mean after, after that? Oh, I mean, right? Like, conclusion a year from now is clearly like part two of the story. Exactly. Yeah, okay. but after that, you know, it's kind of funny. I was thinking, right? They may very well be fucked, actually, because um, because you can't really go bigger, mm-hmm. and and you know, comics saw this yeah. as well mm-hmm. that you really big like uh, you know for all intents and purposes you could never have a bigger comic crossover than crisis in infinite earths mm-hmm. you know because mm-hmm. that and and you know marvel secret wars the hickman secret wars is essentially crisis in infinite earths again because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's as big as you go mm-hmm. you destroy reality what's left of reality has a fight you restart reality you can't do bigger than that yeah yeah so you just said that with like variations on that or other storylines that you know are by their very design, less epic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I don't think... I'm not sure you can have a movie that is really bigger than Infinity War. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I personally think one of the things that might be an advantage would be that um, you can sort of downscale it and begin building to whatever the next thing is that will be in like I mean hopefully they'll play it right and it'll be another, another eight decade? to ten yeah eight to ten years or something you know be like I'm super curious and this like was folded into one of the pitches but wasn't the point of the pitch mm-hmm. how do people who don't read how are people who don't read comics going to react to the second half of Infinity War and going forward because like you and me are like well they're obviously bringing everyone back. Well, you know, actually, that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about uh, in talking about the movie um, is one of the things that I thought was really funny and sort of savvy was the way in which you get to the end of the movie and, you know, basically Thanos wins and half of everyone disappears. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, if it had if it had been where the people who everyone's been speculating are going to go because their contracts are up, like if Chris Evans had crumbled into dust, right? You'd, you'd be kind of like, oh, holy fuck, you know. But one of the weird, nice meta turns about this is because it's Tom Holland and the Guardians and Black Panther, you're like, oh, yeah, they're those people aren't going to... They're coming back. Like, I, I, well, I, I will tell you, having been at the opening night, mm-hmm. people thought people f- wholeheartedly embraced those deaths. Right. They did not think it was a, a, a fake out. 
Oh, well, I I mean, sure, in the moment, it's a shocker, but at least for me, I was kind of like, I don't know, like, even by the time you get to the end, to me, is you know, 10 minutes into the four and a half hour credit sequence, I was like, well, yeah, but I mean, because I kind of had that thing of like, it didn't, and and maybe that's, maybe it is the difference between the opening night crowd who are fully invested and the Wednesday matinee crowd about whom I've got some amazing stories to tell you. And, I look forward to that. Uh, and, but I was just kind of like, oh, that's kind of like, to me, it's, and, and admittedly, part of it is, I'm sure, for someone for whom, God help me, because I know this is a, an internet hot take, for someone for whom Infinity War is their Empire Strikes Back, like, some <laughs> fully invested, uh... like, 14-year-old is prob- probably just feels, like, punched in the gut, but... I think for me, I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of really clever. Like, I feel like this is not, I mean, it's not upbeat, but I kind of had the, to me, the meta outside of it, you know, outside the the text is clearly pointing to, they're, they're clearly going to come back. The idea that you have Black Panther... You know, which is, which was so enormous, right? Well, I mean, the real giveaway for me is they actually have already dated the Spider-Man sequel. Well, yeah. Like, it's coming out next summer. Yeah, right. You know, every, like, everyone's openly talking about Guardians of the Galaxy 3 as well. It's not, it doesn't have a date, but they have actually said the date of the Spider-Man sequel. Yeah. You know, which is the the obvious thing. Here's something else I like meta about the end of the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Every character who dies, mm-hmm. every sorry, every hero who dies, mm-hmm. uh, is from Marvel Phase Two onwards. Yes, well, they leave it with they leave it with the original Avengers, which is great, and that's the which, other which thing that I thought smart. was smart. I actually yeah. really like that. Yeah, me I really too. like that. Basically, the follow up is going to have to be for the last movie with these actors. Mm-hmm. They are going to like by by necessity be the the central characters. Yeah, right. They have to be the central characters. And they're, they're going to have to work together and right. It's, it's, in that sense, I thought, again, kind of brilliantly set up because it, it, it yes, pairs it's, everything it's, down to them. And it's wonderfully set up to their last film is a reset of the original Avengers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, which is, which is super smart. Yeah. Um, with the exception of Hawkeye because, boof. Jeremy Renner's not in the film inexplicably. Yeah, I love that that little tossed away explanation, and I was going to talk about it, talk about that, and realized I couldn't think of. I kept saying like, yeah, just the fact they couldn't get Jeremy Piven back for Infinity War. I'm like, okay, that's probably part of the problem right there. Oh no, I mean everyone's someone. I guess people think that like. Jeremy Renner does have a career. He was in The Arrival, and I mean, he continues to be what my dear departed father would call tits on a bore, and yet somehow still manages to have, like, uh, apparently a career that is considered a successful career with, you know, work and accolades and, like, and lots of money. But I'm just always kind of like, every time I see pictures of him as Hawkeye, I'm like, man... I, I just feel like Marvel and him both feel really embarrassed that they penned that deal. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, and to be fair, they all shoot. <laughs> for all the Mar- no, but really, for all that Marvel has nailed it on casting certain actors. Mm-hmm. Like, really, who can think of Captain America now without thinking of Chris Evans? Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and for that matter, uh, Robert Downey Jr. and and uh, Iron Man. Right. Like, 
Jeremy Renner and Hawkeye? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it still just seems like, really? Was yeah. he all that was available? Like, yeah. what What happened? Right. No, I think at the time they were like, they thought it was a brilliant idea for, for both, you know, because it was, I think he got signed like super after Hurt Locker and I feel like there was something that was kind of also post Hurt Locker that was like, oh, okay, this guy is going to be an up and comer, you know, and I suppose that made sense, but of course, you know, I... It, and I think there was kind of that idea of, you know, Marvel at that point, and probably, you know, to an extent still is, it was operating on the cheap. And I think that Renner was one of those, you know, fit really nicely in Marvel Universe Phase 1 box of, can we get anyone that seems like they have a certain degree of kind of heat or critical cachet that is also kind of willing to like sign their asses up for like seven movies in a row you know and and i think i think renner sort of completely you know fit that bill in, in a lot of ways and for both of them i could see where it made a lot of sense at the time and honestly it says something pretty impressive about like you said marvel and the way that they're that they've cast that for the most part they don't have a lot of dogs kind of hanging around where you're just like no really i mean really it is kind of jeremy renner that's about it that's about it yeah yeah i mean maybe you could make an argument for uh i can't even remember the name of the woman who plays the scarlet witch whose name i literally can't remember for the life of me oh yeah 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 shoot right because she's because she's elizabeth olsen it's yes because of the olsen twin factor connection no i couldn't even remember olsen i couldn't remember any yeah. of her name at all yeah uh but but in a way uh i give her i give her a leeway that i don't give renner because like she's had just in every single film she's appeared in for marvel like just the, the worst writing honestly i feel like infinity war was about as good as it was going to get and even then i think there's just I don't know. Again, it's one of those deals where I think they needed to. Uh, I, I feel like one of one of the things that was tough was again they already had uh, Paul Bettany in the can as the voice of Jarvis, and they were going to move him forward as the Vision. I assume those people tested together, but bless their hearts, they they have like. They are the walking definition of anti-chemistry, you know. I was going to say, I, I was hoping you were going to end up with, like, they have zero chemistry. I think zero is really kind of overstating it, don't you? Like, it really is. Like, they would have to get out of the negative integers to get into, um, to get to zero. Like, I've, they're, they're, they're young and in love, Jeff. Right. Well, see, that's it. He's not young, although I, in his human incarnation, I was like, oh, yeah, they really got to get that red latex off of him. He's kind of – he's expressive and, and you know, sort of charismatic. But, like, their scenes, like the scene that they have in Scotland where, you know, they're like, oh, I love you so much. I love you too. Please, let's stay together. Don't go. I've been thinking about this. And and they're saying things, <laughs> and it's like their their eyes are just so, like – did someone just text me? I'm pretty sure someone just texted me. Like, you know, like, it's so heavy. They're like, God, I can't wait to fucking check my phone. Like, they just, uh, uh, the, and so you just, you feel for them. And it's interesting because it's such a, it's such an important pivot point in this movie 
And I think it's it, sadly it's going to end up being some sort of bigger point in the next one. I think. I mean, uh, is it like one of the other things this film did is it set up obvious gimmies for the sequel, right? Well, like maybe really, really, really obvious yeah. ones. And I'm not actually sure that Wanda and the Vision are beyond the fact that obviously they're both going to be fine. Well, they're going to be fine, but if you want to know my personal theory, um, and, and and I don't know if this is widespread or not, because of course I skipped most of the stuff. This is probably a long shot, give me, but I'm pretty convinced that Vision's coming back as Adam Warlock. I don't think that he's going to yeah, be. He's not. <laughs> okay. Do you know how I can say, you know how I can say that? Yeah, please. Lots of Guardians Three. Mm. I don't know. I think I I think it's a swerve. Uh, maybe it's a swerve, but uh, yeah, I I I think he's more likely to show up in in. Because okay, in, so here's the thing. Like, no, I I, under, I understand like the comic basis for that argument strongly. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I think that everything is like, laid to, out to the point where it feels weird that he's not there. Yeah, yeah. I I think, but, but I I fully. I like I actually do believe James Gunn in this case. I think he's he's being saved for for Guardians Three. Yeah, I I, I it's possible. I, I think that, and who knows? Maybe. Yeah, I I did. I we'll see if I, I in that case that makes a lot of sense. And part of me is like, yeah, why wouldn't they sort of reset that? But in my head, I'm like, no. If you really want to go with the like the you know. The character with the sacrifice and the et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Adam Warlock did start off as an artificial human, so he really closely parallels. It just, to me, it's like, it maps, plus he has the soul gem, it's, it maps just way too nicely. But. Yeah, no, I, I, I honestly wholeheartedly agree. You know? Um, I just, I would be very surprised if that's what they do. Yeah. Well, um, wait, no, do, wait. He doesn't have the soul gem. Yeah, he he's the mind gem, doesn't he? I, I thought it was the soul. I thought the yellow the soul, was the soul gem. No, the, soul, the soul gem is the one that that Gamora dies for. Oh right, she does. Yeah, right, right, right. You're right, and he's got the mind gem. Okay, okay. That's that's true. That's true. Although, again, I'm like, I don't know, man. Still makes a ton of sense. But uh, but yeah, I mean, so. he has a gem. On his fucking forehead. Well, he's got a gem on his head. Like... Right. He's got the artificial man, and then I think that there's also kind of that idea of if you need someone that's supposed to be the counterbalance in a way to Thanos, and that's traditionally played in the comics by Adam Warlock, then if you end up with basically your robo-savior, uh, you know robo savior uh hero who then has a reason to essentially not be with scarlet witch because he essentially has to go off and be in the cosmos as the, the and, and be like space jesus yeah yeah space jesus like i think that whole arc is kind of perfectly set up and gives gives the character you know this crazy arc that works across god however many films you know and also provides a sort of um, a, a key to Tony Stark's uh, own redemption arc, you know, in the sense that he manages to go from creating a weapon and weapons to creating sort of this this unexpected an, an anti-weapon. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I think I think all of your arguments are sound. And, and you're like, and it's still sound. not going to happen. Well, yeah. No, ar- yeah, arguably more sound than what they're going to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I still don't think it's going to happen for not just the, I think, I believe James Gunn, the, the Adams in, in Guardians 3, but also I don't think Marvel would trade the vision away for Adam Warlock. That could be. I mean, that could be. I, I think there's a good point to be made for that, but... I don't know. Again, your argument is sound. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just looking at it through a much more cynical <laughs> Sure. But also, also, at the same time, very non-cynical because I'm, I'm taking James Gunn at his word. Right, right. Uh, so so I'm, I'm, I'm having my gullibility cake and eating it, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, no, the, so the, the, the obvious things that are dangling for me is Gamora is clearly still alive. In fact, the end of the film tells you that. Um, oh, how so? I, I'm sure I missed that, but please. Uh, when Thanos kills everyone, he goes into the Soul Stone and he sees Kid Gamora. He t- and he talks to her. So Gamora oh, is alive. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he talks to Kid Gamora inside the stone. Yeah, that's absolutely yes. So Gamora's alive in the, in the Soul Gem. Right. Um, Doctor Strange clearly is up to something. Otherwise, why did he give the time gem to Thanos? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and the Hulk thing is so weird that it needs a payoff. Well, oh, the Hulk thing needs a payoff, and the Tony Stark, Tony, the Tony Cap reunion thing is uh, reconciliation is clearly going to be a thing. In fact, it was interesting to me, and this Does, is didn't I just meet on screen. Uh, yeah, not just meet, but also reconcile after the events of Civil War and whatever through whatever ends up yeah. happening or for whatever reason. So. Um, yeah, there's going to be they're, they're going to reconcile. Well, that, that's what was so interesting about then. Like, as I think we both did, like we like the choice of the characters that are left at the end of the film. Yes, choice that makes no sense to me is Tony Stark is still on an alien planet alone. Yeah, how does he get back to Earth? Uh, I'm not too worried about that. I feel like they... I'm not worried because like they could they could literally just be like, and Thanos goes back to Titan and says, "No, I want you to leave," and zaps him back to Earth. Like, there's there's easy ways to do right. it. There's that. It's there's so yeah. Weird there... that he's he's there. I'm like, I'm I'm, a, I'm actually going to call a Wong from Strange's mansion manages to launch a dimensional portal to get them back super quick. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there there are yeah there are multiple ways of doing it. Yeah. But it's just weird that that's where. Like I guess I'm surprised that like he doesn't show up at the very end mm-hmm. to be like, like what happened or I'm so sorry or something. Mm-hmm. Like the, the lack of that beat for me mm-hmm. was weird in this film. Right, right. Like its absence is notable. Uh, notable. Well, I mean, the thing that I find fascinating about Infinity War is that it is it. It's kind of it, in the sense of truly being a superhero comic book movie, in the truest sense, in that it can neither it it can't stand on its own in any way. It doesn't work without everything that comes before it, and it won't work without the things that come after it. Like in that sense, like the fact that I found amazing is is that Chris Evans. His best acting scene, and he's very good in it, is literally his reaction shots while listening to uh, Wanda and the Vision talk about, you know, 
Vision sacrificing, like just rip out the gem. No, it may not happen. Lots of shots of him list, like cap listening, being like teary and moved and thoughtful and frustrated and all that stuff. And like just two or three reaction shots, like literally they keep cutting away to him. And I'm like, and that's the best, like that's the, that's the closest you get to sort of emotional cap connection. The rest of the mm-hmm. time he's just, essentially making statements you know yes yeah uh, you know as sort of as a voice of uh, emotional authority but it is fascinating it was fascinating the the way in which they everyone sort of got their moments but it's interesting the the moments that they got and caps perhaps unsurprisingly were all um iconic choices like of using him as icon i suppose and which was fine but i also found myself thinking like that's not going to be something that like the only way that that is more or less tolerable is the idea that these guys are all going to have lots of what the fuck are we going to do we have to figure out how to work together and blab de blab blab in the next movie i think while also they have to figure out a way to keep the keep the stakes high, I suppose, you know. Yeah. So, so it'll be it'll but so there was a lot of really the other thing I wanted to mention to you that I think was really kind of odd and fucked up. Uh, I don't know, fucked up's the right term, but I'm fascinated by the influence of. There were parts of Infinity War big chunks that were kind of really hard to imagine without J. Michael Straczynski, you know? No, I don't. Explain that. I think that, well, because essentially the scenes with Spider-Man in what's a basically a modified version of the Scarlet Spider suit that, um, that, that's, that Spidey was oh, sure, using sure, toward yeah. the end of the Straczynski run, um, mm-hmm. But also the connection between Tony Stark and Spider-Man, which again is a connection that Straczynski made and may well have been part of the the brain trust and may well have actually stemmed from the stuff in Secret War. But like, but Straczynski, I mean, sorry, Civil War, but Straczynski really laid a ton of groundwork for that, that they are really the fidelity um, to that in, um, uh, in in Infinity War was interesting to me because on the one hand, it does, in, in the same way it did with Spider-Man Homecoming, it provides a lot of handy solutions and a lot of really super good shorthand... Um, it, it fixes a lot of problems... Even as it comes really, really close to breaking Spider-Man as a character, and I actually thought that the relationship between Spider-Man and Iron Man worked much more gracefully than I expected in this film, and also brought Spider-Man into the film much more gracefully than I expected. Right. Because realistically, Spider-Man has no reason to be there. Well, I, right. Well, in terms of like uh, going from. Spider-Man Homecoming, where the entire thing is like, you don't get involved in the big stories. Right. You know, I, I am going to stop you getting involved in the big stories. Right. I am going to forbid this. Um, 
the the the, the plot mechanics of getting him on that ship mm-hmm. worked for me in a way that I was worked surprisingly well. No, and I absolutely I'm agree. What's mm-hmm. on the ship? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it, it, that's all you need because, yep. like, he's just there then. Right. You know? Well, see, I mean, this is this is the thing that sort of bothers me because on the one hand, you're right. And and it's again it's one of those things where all the solutions are elegant and um I feel like Holland actually does help make uh Downey's character more palatable for me like there's a lot of things there's a lot of things that work and ultimately you know you get a wisecracking Spider-Man hopping around doing stuff but also I've got to tell you mm-hmm. Tom Holland is especially in Infinity War for me. Uh, Hannah Blumenreich's Spider-Man. Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, in a way that, like, yeah. I was like, why do I like him so much? And it, I can't remember. There's one shot I remember being like, oh, because he fucking looks like Hannah's Peter Parker. Yeah, he did. It's it's a it's a really beautiful tight uh, synergy there. It's kind of. I like, mean, it, it would be if Marvel leaned into Hannah's Spider-Man. Well, no, exactly. But I mean, for, I guess for yeah, for me as a viewer. But I mean, I think that that's and that's. I also I also just think that that Holland's like a really for me is is kind of perfect in that role and in that conception of the role. What is problematic for me though is is that ultimately until you get any kind of schism between him and Downey, there's just no like it to me it's it makes him. It all makes sense, but it also turns, it take, it, 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 um, it just sort of, um, what's the right word? It, it basically sort of, uh, takes the edge off the Spider-Man character implicit in the Spider-Man character. You know what I mean? Like, the, the idea of Spider-Man with the, you know, with great power comes great responsibility is a, um, slogan that is a, about self-modulation, I suppose, you know, for lack of a better term. And when you basically are being told what to do by your super-powered mentor, um, it 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 doesn't it doesn't have the same ring. Like it sure. all makes sense that Peter is the way that he is in the movies, and maybe there's a point where they're moving to a schism where he is or isn't, but. By dint of having him be kind of a guy, uh, a guy in a Tony Stark suit, and that those Tony Stark suits can change or be toyetic as 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 needed, and also taking away his sense of agency, like the whole point of Spider-Man is kind of about someone who has superpowers and has to create his own sense of agency and of course part of what really comes from the the miracle of the Lee Ditko stuff is the idea of like that's not as it's not an a priori thing as it is for the rest of the other Silver Age superheroes like that means maybe you're trying to make money by wrestling maybe you're actually going to use your powers to punk the bully who's who who keeps punking you maybe it means you know there's just all these things that get to play out as as um choices that feel to me very um 
uh, at the core of Spider-Man that currently is kind of being cock-blocked by this uh, Tony Stark-Iron Man relationship. But does that not get fixed when Tony Stark dies in the next film? Uh, yeah, probably will. It, I mean, again, I... Because, because I... Well, first of all, did you, you saw Homecoming last year, right? The, yeah, the I did, movie? absolutely. Yep. Did that not... Uh, did the relationship there between him and Tony Stark not fulfill what you're asking in that it is expressly about him uh, trying to uh, create his own agency, even though it is essentially to impress an adult, uh, an Yeah, no, I, I feel that that is it. Unfortunately, that, that, it's very different. I mean, okay. I enjoyed Homecoming, but at the same time, there's there's whole sequences where. The difference between Spider-Man, oh shit, my web fluid is out because I forgot to pack it in my pants when I ran out the door to get to school, and oh shit, my web shooters are out because um, I, I, you know, managed to to turn off the Nerf settings on Tony Stark's AI is is it's a complete it's a completely different thing, you know, and and at the time it was kind of like eh, it's it all it don't get me wrong it all still kind of works but in that sort of weird grumbly like it's just it's kind of like dan slots like stridently anti-terrorist spider-man like it just you know back during the I, 24 I, days you what's know? really what's really funny is like you said that and i was like no you take that back <laughs> And I don't know why. Um, it, what's also funny is before you said that, before you made that explicit comparison, mm-hmm. um, I was like, I'll give this one to you because you care about Spider-Man more than I do. Well, okay. This is, again, this, like, care about... I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I enjoy seeing the performances on there, and there no, are I mean, ways I'm, in which I'm, the I'm characters character. clearly do have to change, you know, in order to survive on there. I'm just saying that the the... The difference is, I think, a kind of um, strong one, and it's not one where it's, to me, at that level of like, oh, but Star-Lord in the original comics was a prick, you know, because because of the horoscope, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like, a, a to me, a different level, or if like, you know, clearly when you get the sort of weirdly sustained payoff that you can get from changing the character of Drax the way that you do, like... By all means, there is a way in which, yeah, if it works, it works. I, I, but I'm now super curious. What's the weirdly sustained payoff of drags? I just think I think that that drags. Just the comedic, just the yeah, the comedic payoff? stuff. Yeah, the comedic payoffs are were actually I think totally like, oh okay, this this really works. Like in the first movie, I thought that that kind of thing was sort of goofy and uh just kind of a weird bad change but as they continue to make him like this really hilariously emotionally oblivious um self-centered character in a way that's completely like so far away from Starlin's conception oh, it's, of the it's, character it's right amazing, yeah it's, it's amazingly far away yeah we, and, uh, but it's it's I, i'm i'm more than anything i'm sort of amused that like you're like yeah it's gotten better over the movies cuz not my take on it. <laughs> oh, really? So, so, well, so let's, you know, I mean, as long as we're digging I, into this stuff, what did and didn't work for you for Infinity War? Because uh, I thought actually the I, I think Infinity War overall actually is a surprisingly well mm-hmm. 
structured movie. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember in the theater actually thinking that. Mm-hmm. Actually thinking, like, the, literally the moving from bit to bit to bit to bit mm-hmm. worked surprisingly well. Yeah. And better than it should have, mm-hmm. considering the, how amazingly fragmented it is. Yes. Um, there are parts in the second half where the plot mechanics took over for me. Mm-hmm. And, and and I started to drop off. I'd said this last time that there's like there's one particular point where I was like where the movie kind of broke for me. And which part? Which point was that? Uh, it's the point after they've had the confrontation in Titan where Thanos is hypnotized and they're trying to get the glove off. Mm. Trying, and uh, and what broke it for me is no one tries to kill Thanos then or cut off his arm or anything. Right. They're just like we'll take the glove off. Yeah. Oh, don't shout at him. Peter mm-hmm. was just insane to me. Mm-hmm. It's like after all of that, yeah. like you've got essentially comatose, and not one of you is trying to kill him. Right? Like, sure, try and kill him, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Try and ki- or at least one of you try and kill him, and everyone else is like, you can't kill him. Right? Like, do something. But the fact that no one even tried mm-hmm. broke it. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think because I, I told you last week that like I said that, and and my THR editor was like, oh no, it's another bit that broke the film for him, and I can't remember what his scene was. Mm. I think, I think Thor, but I think it was the fact that Thor stabbing him did nothing. Oh, uh, at, wait, the at Thor's... the very end. Oh, at the, the very the, end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where I think he was just like, well, what was the fucking point of that? Like, right. What, what was the point of the whole Stormbreaker thing? The Peter Dinklage scene uh, scenes are astonishingly bad to me. To the point where I was like, why did they not cut this? This is terrible. Um, uh, yeah, the right. Gamora flashback scenes were did not work for me. I'm sorry, the Gamora I, which which scenes? Flash, flashback. flashback. Oh, oh, I think for some reason I said flashlight. I actually thought that scene was okay, although I very much had the idea of like it really had it had one of those deals of like wow, you guys if you really were like had been planning and strategizing this the way that you said that you would have that scene would have and should have shown up in Guardians 1 maybe Guardians 2 and then you could have played with it a little bit in um Infinity War from a different angle but just the fact that you go back to that I know they're kind of like oh no see you kind of get to see the genocidal side of Thanos and the blah 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 it's just so obvious um for me, it mainly worked because I, of course, thought that um, child Gamora was such a better actor than adult Gamora that it, it, it made the scene <laughs> work for me. And that's sad, but it's actually kind of true. Is like, you know, um, you know, there, what I thought was interesting were the ways in which they kept going for gimmies that were the kind of things that you more or less forgave kind of because of the scope of things and I feel like the Thanos Gamora relationship was was definitely one of those that's like this is if if these scenes if they've been able to craft them as well as most as a lot of the other scenes have been crafted in the movie you would see two characters um more or less misunderstanding each other the full time through and finally coming to the realizations 
in that sort of last scene that seemed to work for a lot of people, which is, you know, uh, which is the sacrifice at the soul stones. But I, for me, it was like, it's just scenes in which these two characters keep saying the same things to each other. And you kind of have to be like, Oh yeah, but they're not really listening to one another. Cause you know, they're like family or whatever the fuck it was. I mean, it really yeah, I like was. that. That stuff just didn't, work yeah. for me and like it was one of those things like you said it's a gimme you're like okay sure right you know yeah fine i i know this is I, I i read that with all the um sincerity of like the the watch the vision wanda scenes right you know we were like okay sure whatever yeah um yeah. well except for me i sort of felt like at least and maybe you and i might split on this but i thought actually brolin uh, Josh Brolin did a really very no, I, good performance. I, I, yes, you know? and also I think CGI worked in a way that I just would not have expected from the trailers. I know, right? I was I was really shocked by how well that motion capped giant guy. Perhaps unsurprisingly, considering the Hulk in you know in the other movies has worked so well, but really at a level of um. I don't know, like just my brain, there was no point where my brain rebelled from it, and his performance really actually seemed um, nuanced. You know, I don't mean to um, bring up Justice League, you know, uh, ever, basically <laughs> well, no, but, ever but, but, again. But compare, but, yeah, but compare yeah. Thanos with uh, Steppenwolf? I yeah. was, this, this is so bad, Justice League like is in my brain, I literally forgot who the villain was in Justice League. Yeah, exactly. I was like, uh, the, yeah, the albino motion-capped guy. Like, But at the same time, compare him with what um, Ares turns into in Wonder Woman. Right. <laughs> DC does like to turn their, their villains in the third act into, like, you know, video game cutscene character. Well, yeah. I mean, and but but what was interesting to me is how much Steppen, Steppenwolf's role in Justice League, and it is kind of interesting in the sense that Whedon is in, in the mix somehow, ends up being, perhaps unsurprisingly, since he's sort of dark side light, which is, again, a way to describe Thanos, like... There's there's ways in which they're trying to do the same things because there's yeah. that Steppenwolf just will not fucking shut up during Justice League, you know, and is also similarly like I'm such a badass I can beat any single one of you individually, so you have to team up to beat me. Um, it ends up it's amazing how in similar on uh, only on paper only. It seems, and then the results couldn't be more different, which I thought was, um, again, just one of those things that's kind of like neither here nor there, other than just yeah, Marvel, for whatever reason, through luck or skill or whatever, did not end up with a Steppenwolf on their hands, and thank God for that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's skill more than luck. Like I, I yes. honestly think at this point they're like, okay, we've we've been working with this this motion capture. For a number of films, mm-hmm. we've honestly like if you go back and look at Thanos in the first Avengers film or Guardians of the Galaxy and compare them with Infinity War, yeah, like you know we've been refining Thanos, yes, absolutely the whole well. time, yep, yep, yep. Uh, you know there, there's it's 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 not luck, I mm-hmm. guess is what I'm yes. saying. Yes, like I, yeah. I think they actually worked at it, and I think we have to give them credit for it. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the amount of Black Panther in Avengers? 
that's a good question. I thought, I thought, I thought, um, Panther got short shifts, short shrift, sorry. Is, is uh, it not kind of hilarious to destroy Wakanda? Well, honestly, I, I mean, knew it'll get undone. Yeah, but still. No, I mean, I I saw that one coming. Unfortunately, as soon Wait. as I saw, as soon as you walk out of Black Panther, I'm like, okay, that you shit is getting yeah, it's yeah, going to get destroyed by Infinity. Otherwise, you've broken the universe again. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it was just a couple of factors of like, yeah, that's that's going to have to fall. That's kind of there in in part to fall, and just. Just a variety of things. Also, the way in which um, the way in which you know Infinity War really does pull um, a lot from Hickman's Infinity uh, in a yes. lot of ways. A yeah, lot. It really of ways. does. It really does. You know, there's a, there was a way in which I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, people are jumping around and they're grabbing Infinity Gauntlet. You know, is the number one best-selling digital comic on Amazon or whatever, maybe graphic novel or, and I'm like I think honestly like reading like a weird janked up version like reading Thanos Quest and uh, Hickman's Infinity is going to give you like closer to mm-hmm. that kind of the mm-hmm. tone that Infinity War is going for in a way and I don't you know so six of one half, half dozen of the other but in that sense you know in Infinity um Panther and Wakanda are pretty much there to be, you know, destroyed as well. And really, for a similar sort of like, to make you kind of feel the cost and the stakes. And and it's a good shortcut as a way to give you something to kind of care about, you know, um, it, 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 for those instant stakes. Because clearly they can only, you know, the fact that, that they sort of had their 9-11 illusions uh, 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 so early in Infinity War, well, I was like, oh, well, thank Christ. Well, you, you know? say that, but also, like, the post credit scene, Jeff. Oh, yeah, right, right. Yep, exactly. Holy shit, 9-11. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yeah. No, Well, but that's it. I mean, it's that there's... What I find fascinating uh, for me, Mr. Like, oh, here comes Jeff with the annoying parts uh, of Jeff, not the movie, um, is is how much um, the Marvel movies and Infinity War, I think, is especially the case, seem to so perfectly embody a kind of neoliberal, both... Like in, a neoliberal anxiety, I guess, for lack of a better term, which is which is very much this idea of there sort of like there's kind of like there's nothing you can do because this is the alternative, you know. And so very much the the whole nine eleven isms of Avengers that come back in Avengers Infinity War, and you realize just really reverberate throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think has in its way it's sort of the same way that that neolibs are kind of like ah yeah you know like the military we need them they're important it's such an we have to you know we got to kill people with drones in that sense the the avengers are the the fact that all of the marvel heroes uh you know up to a certain point and even you know are so tightly tied 
to the military. Mm-hmm. And the fact that in Black Panther, you have just this incredible whipsaw between, uh, which actually works to the film's advantage of like, you know, Killmonger was right. And here we've got like a lovable CIA, CIA agent helping, you know, prop up an, an African monarchy kind of thing is kind of like, there's a, there's a lot of playing with imagery that is, that is so taken for granted, and I guess maybe when it's when it's happening at a subtextual level, um, it that's maybe that's sort of the name of the game. But I found it fascinating, and this is the thing that is being played out on the internet. And since I'm not reading the articles, I'm sure you find it way more tedious uh, than than I do. Is the idea that um, Thanos's sort of ridiculous. Uh, the, the, the change in his motivation is so presented as kind of this like a priori sort of, uh, end stage capitalism idea of like, well, of course there's not, you know, there's, there, there's just not enough resources. You have to ha- wipe out half the, the world. And it's like, what about efficiency? What about energy? What about capitalism? Like, and, you know. Yeah, there, there, there's, there's a lot of, that this week, yeah, which has been uh, exhausting to see, I guess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of. Uh, I, I this week has been my week of getting very tired of people being like, "Aha, have you thought about this?" Mm-hmm. When it's something relatively obvious, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, like people being like, "Thanos is wrong," and it's like, "Of course he's fucking wrong." Well, but I mean, the thing that's interesting is, is I do kind of feel that he's presented as a villain, but the film doesn't really kind of paint it as, and maybe this will really oh, no, will no, play no, out more in the next. Paints film. it as as the noble villain. Yes, as you know, he's he's really hurting for, but for a noble cause. Right. Uh, when. When Marvel, I think it was in a trailer or something, maybe it was a, a, uh, an interview, but before the movie came out, they basically said, like, this is Thanos' motivation. Right. And I'm talking to my THR editor, and I'm like, yeah, he does, you know, the comics, is, it's better than the comic because he's in love with death. Mm-hmm. Like, so sure, you know, in Thanos' quest, he, he actually does lay out the argument he lays out in the movie. Mm-hmm. But the reason he really does it is because he wants to impress death. Mm-hmm. And so that's like a better motivation in my mind. Right. But I'm like, you know, this is movie motivation. And Aaron goes, that's the motivation of Samuel L. Jackson's villain from the Kingsman movie. And it, it really is. Oh, is it? The, the yeah. like, cut out half the people so yes. that you have the thing? Jesus. And I saw the Kingsman movie, which is well, just... So have, I, so have I, but I didn't remember. But he was like, yeah, he's, he's fucking Samuel L. Jackson in the Kingsman movie. Wow, that's crazy. That's hilarious. Well, but at least, and this is, and I think this is very instructive, because when it, like... It's that weird, like, I'm sure your editor is right, I don't remember it, but I do vaguely remember one of the things that's, that is important is, is that Jackson is, um, as I recall, more or less allied with a bunch of other sort of rich yahoos. Yeah, like yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. definitely a rich yahoo plan, and so yes, yes. in that sense, it makes it, sense it, coming it from that character, yes, you know? Yes, so. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's what, that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, the, Kingsman has the guts to call bullshit on that plan. Exactly. 
Exactly. And Avengers doesn't. In fact, Avengers, if anything, by and it's for me particularly the Gamora scene, the sacrificing Gamora mm-hmm. thing. It's like, oh, he, but Thanos hurts too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanos is really just doing what he has to, which is like clearly bullshit. Well, but I mean, but that's exactly the way. It's clearly that's bullshit. Way, Way it's presented in the film, yeah. Yeah, it's it is. It's the way that it's presented in the film, and for the most part, again, I think it very much mirrors, um, you know, the way that a lot of, pink, you know, pinko-ish people like myself see the way that the media treats, you know, Jeff Bezos, Donald Trump, like you know, the amount of kind of it's a free pass. Their, their, you know, their opinions are put out without being challenged, and let's focus on their pain, you know. And in so, in that sense, one of the things that's really fascinating to me about the Marvel movies, and maybe it is part of the way that they connect, is uh, is the way in which they're they are they are blinded. They have their blinders on in a way that matches up very neatly with the way that the blinders are on in America. I find it's fascinating that it also works worldwide in that sense, but it is interesting to me how much of the, you know, but again, like I said, it's, it's never quite fully in all the way over in that, like Thanos is the villain, like Killmonger, like the stuff where it's like Killmonger stuff is, uh, his arguments linger after the film is over and kind of the way in which they move towards sort of some of those ideas like you know again the the whole tying of the Marvel heroes to the military industrial complex and then more or less taking Captain America and putting him in direct conflict with that you know in Winter Soldier and uh, is is a real it's a it's 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 not a settled thing which is maybe that's part of but i sometimes worry that's kind of a they're trying to have their cake and eat it too and part of me is like i'm sorry these movies are filled with ridiculous things having a character be in love with the personification of death is like perfectly fits that kind of like it 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 fits the epic scope that they're trying to go for. Exactly. It's the thing. Yeah. Like, there's nothing more outlandish about that than there is about anything else to do with the, the Black Order. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Like, it, 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 it completely... And, cause you can also do what they do with Asgard, which essentially just be like, there, you know, it might not even be the personification of death. Right. It's well, someone yes. who believes in the personification. Absolutely. Like, they, they, yep. they can, Fudge it, and they just chose not to. Yeah, they they just chose to cut to it because I think they really were aware of the that that is not you know apart from you know an elite team of Norwegian death metal bands like that's just not going to resonate as a viable like oh I can see both sides here you know a little bit you know it's like they you can't quite get that note you know in that sense but um. Other things that worked for me to switch around, like because you mentioned, I thought I thought actually again the construction, the opening sequence with Thor and Loki. Um, of course, I thought like you mentioned the the P 
Peter Dinklage stuff really not working for you, I thought that Thor worked so incredibly well throughout this film. I'm kind of appalled that Chris, Chris Hemsworth, again, in that, like, oh, here's a dude that they locked down for, like, seven movies, and it's like, Jesus Christ, like, that guy is, like... I. I, he's actually getting good enough that I would consider seeing him in other non-Thor related movies. You know what I mean? Like that's he, probably a bad decision. No, I know. I haven't done it yet. I'm not planning on it. But I mean, give give him a couple. Of, if he if he ends up to if he moves into a couple of like Judd Apatow style rom coms, I'll do that. I'm never going to show up for all these damn movies that they put him in, where it's kind of like based on the riveting true story of an athlete who did a thing in a car or a boat, or maybe it's a car boat. You know, Chris Hemsworth is car boat. You know, I just I don't want to see that. Fuck you, Carpoat was great. It's yeah. better than Thor. You know what? I sorry everyone, I hate to say it, but Ron Howard did not do Carboat any justice at all. That dude <laughs> is a boring director and Oh Jeff, you're literally just leading me to my like rant of the week. <laughs> oh, here we go. I wish we had theme music I, I... for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. I'm just going to give you the cliff notes there. Oh, gonna... That sucks. As you know, I spend a lot of time uh, on nerd social media um, and paying attention to what people are saying because as much as anything else, I'm looking to see what what might generate stories. Absolutely, yes. Jeff, I am so earth-shatteringly sick of fake contrarians who are putting forward the idea that, hey – the Star Wars movies are good, actually. Or, hey, the Marvel movies are good, actually. So many times this week, so many times, I've seen people arguing with literally no one going, I think you'll find that Rogue One was good, and I think you'll find that Ant-Man was good, and I think you'll find that Solo is going to be good, because it's a Star Wars film. (laughs) And I want to set my head on fire. (laughs) These films are the fucking dominant culture. Yeah. The idea that like, you're somehow defending something that needs defending is insane to yeah, me. Yeah. I'm literally like, I, I've got to just speak up for Marvel. Do you? Do yep. you really? Yep. yep. Does all the millions of dollars now speak up for Marvel instead? Ant-Man was good. I Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I didn't particularly like it, but you know who did? Everyone who paid to see it and it made hundreds of millions of fucking dollars. Right. You don't need to say Ant-Man was good. You don't need to say Rogue One was good. It was massively successful. Everyone involved was perfectly happy with that film. Well, you know, this, Graham, is, I think, the, the, when there are times that I lie in bed at night convinced that I am actually part of the problem, uh, this is the kind of stuff that, that comes back to me, you know? It, it, in what way? It, in the sense that I feel that arguing about and actively agitating for pop culture is the dominant form of expression now because we are all so terrified and horrified about 
the real world. The real world, yeah, exactly, literally. Instead, instead of people dominating and and agitating for change, uh, in the world, we are literally fighting and slugging it out over this stuff because we know and we really need a form of. Uh, uh, something to do with the anxiety that's happening from seeing things in the world and feeling powerless. But because we are so completely terrified about this, either the sacrifices that it will take or what happens in the course of that agitation, that instead it's just all going like in all kinds of directions. You know, the sixties deeply, I think, confused the world in a lot of ways and one of the things that was fascinating was the way in which um you know people were like uh, essentially your gender sexual like all, all the the social things that could be challenged in terms of gender and race were also being challenged at the same time of as, as, you know, uh, the military industrial complex and more or less the individual, whether the society is there to serve the individual or the individual is there to serve the society. And also, weirdly enough, the music and the pop culture, like everything sort of felt relevant at all at the same time. And what I think is fascinating is the way in which the 70s began this sort of uh, regression in a lot of ways. Like these things sort of, each thing sort of kind of split off and they all, but, and became, you know, quote unquote important on their own. But I feel like as we move into these areas where the gender and sexuality just seems at this super important pitch and, um, you know, pop culture, like arguing about, discussing about pop culture, it's like, we're not Lester Bangs anymore. And like, the extent to which, like, the Beatles or Bob Dylan or whatever overturned the apple cart of, you know, pop culture and was actually leading to genuine forms of expression in, in areas that had been narrowly restricted. I mean, yeah, okay, fine. But like, somehow from that, in the course of, you know, 10 to 20 years, it was kind of like, hey, good news, like, Jaws is now the number one movie making, you know, number one movie in, in the all-time grosser, and no, wait, no, it just got turned over by Star Wars, or no, wait, that all got turned over by, you know, and again, it just becomes that baton race, but I feel like everyone has the, as as the the politics and became recodified in America and became regressive, um, you know, these things sort of started splitting off, but not not in any way that we could care about them or discuss them, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, you clearly have, you can make the argument that, very clearly that hip-hop is, a, is, an, is a, an enormous reaction 
to um, the politics and the policies of the time. Or you make that argument about punk and the necessities of both of those. And God knows there's probably someone who's going to be able to make that statement about EDM and my brain will just explode. But, like, I'm I'm sure it's there. But at the same time, like... The what we have seen in America, I feel, has become, um, to make up a bullshit word, the samening, you know, this homogenization that, you know, has been going on for decades now. And again, in a way that is, on the one hand, a form of comfort for people in the course of re- undergoing a lot of anxiety in the rest of the world. And therefore, uh, like, it's both a security blanket and it's like those, uh, it's like those fucking, um, uh, mannequins that, that, you know, on rails that people kick in the ass in OMAC, Kirby's OMAC number one, right? Like, it's just people going into the rooms and setting things on fire, which is, you know, all this stuff that's happening in the first few pages of OMAC. It's just, that's, that's that's what these online takes are but it has to be about like this re- this this common ground you know and which ends up being like you said these these movies that make hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars you know and it's just kind of like i don't know i mean there is there is uh at some point someone's going to look back and be like you know what Jeff Lester was entirely wrong because he did not pay attention to the fact that the uh, everyone is able to point to the point the, the the fact that the Matrix was like the number one movie that made the the most money that year and also ended up being the thing that that you know everyone agrees definitively tilted the the gender um binary complex of the the late 20th century and opened things up for the later 21st but you know, for the most part, I feel like people are talking about this shit because they're scared. And for me, I feel like as a dude who, um, you know, will literally be like, gosh, I really should go out and, 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 you know, participate in these marches. But I also kind of have to get these comics read for a podcast, you know, like, well, that, that's, you know, I, I'm very much biting the hand that feeds me by complaining on a podcast about comic book culture yeah exactly uh, about this and i I am aware of that Mm -hmm. um i i'm i'm very curious now do you think that um superhero movies comment on the world i like yeah Mm -hmm. because i i don't want because i don't want to say like do you think superhero comic books do because i think they do uh, on a regular basis i also think they don't on a regular basis it literally depends what you're reading sure. but superhero movies like do do they like you can see glimpses i guess but but i can't think of a movie that outright works as a, a coherent commentary well yeah because i don't uh, i feel like there's very few movies that are designed to be a co you know coherent commentary i would say in a way um you know black panther is the movie that probably comes the closest and it really does have levels of like it it's 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 almost it in a way it almost becomes more problematic for that you know 
I I think that ultimately I feel that the particularly the Marvel superheroes very much reinforce a post 9/11 paradigm in mm. and mm. could I, I, not really exist without it in that framework. Yes, and I, and I think that it's not just the movies. Mm-hmm. I think that the Marvel Cinematic Universe, quote unquote, and by which I mean like I'm including the television. Mm-hmm. Uh, it very much reinforces the the that mindset, like a mindset that is for me very strongly tied to like a decade ago when these movies started, mm-hmm. as opposed to today. Right. You know, well, they're very much a product of their original time. They're they're a product of their original time, but I mean, again, I have a feeling of like. It's e- it's easier in a way for me here on the West Coast to not to feel as if that time is past. It, yeah, exactly. Like it's it's easier, but it's like once you get out of it, it's it's actually really it's it is different. Like the 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 police are more drastically militarized. Like travel is ridiculous in a way that we just all take for granted now. Like you and you just go back to the East Coast. Like there was a thing. Like part of me really did want to groan aloud at that moment in Infinity War where, um, you know, they 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 see that there's something going on outside Doctor Strange's mansion and they open the door and then boom it's like some sort of crazy 9/11 thing is just happening right there and right now I, but weirdly enough there's part of me that's like I don't think that that is I don't know how much that is true in the east coast but that is absolutely 100% the dominant mode in which i feel like most of our news networks operate and the way in which the government tends to communicate with the people i suppose you know mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. always that undercurrent of well we have to do this because you know because the alternative is is apocalypse. The yeah. alternative is is not just bad. The alternative is the worst. Yes, exactly. And uh, this it's it's a shame that we got to this point because there's this actually really ties in with one of the comics that I read this week. So I'll, go go mention it. Let's uh, cut to comics for change. It's taken us more than an hour, but let's do it. Sure. So one of the things that I read right before um before this call, and probably in a way, I, I feel like a lot of what I was thinking was already in place, but this probably heightened it, is I read volume one of the super delightfully named Dead Dead Demons DDD Destruction, uh, volume one. Uh, which is by Aneo Asano and is being published by Viz. Um, you may remember Aneo Asano as the manga guy who did uh, Nijikahara Holograph. And um, I, I think I can say guy now sort of with some confidence because at the time um, that I talked about uh, Nijikahara uh, Holograph, uh, there was a um, some debate. Uh, brought up by the translator as to whether or not uh, Asano 
um, identified as uh, transgender and as a, as uh, as female. And um, after going back and forth and trying to get you know an actual comment from the editors, it was kind of like, oh no, Asano was just kind of joking, and the inflection was lost in the interview. So yes. Asano, the guy, I think I feel comfortable referring to that, has also done other work um, like uh, Goodnight uh, Pun Pun and, or is it Pin Pin? Uh, and there was the uh, Solonin, which was a book that I talked about here on the podcast, which got a, actually a, was very controversial in a way, because Solonin is very much a, um, uh, I am a teenager who has no idea what to do with my life and I don't really want to do anything and what does the world mean? Maybe it means nothing kind of, you know, um, Japanese kind of emo core comic that mm-hmm. a lot of people rightfully loved and which left me really cold because I just did not, it didn't, it didn't resonate with me in any real way because it was, and I, which I tried to clarify was very much a, this does not make any sense to me in in terms of my emotional life as a teen, right? So it just did. I'm like, I see it's good for other people, and other people. There were a lot of commenters on the threads that were like, I'm kind of surprised you don't love this because it's awesome. And Asano, who uh, so Dead Dead Demons D D D D D Destruction Volume One is about a pair of uh, Japanese high school girls who, living in Tokyo uh, after the events of 831, which is when an enormous flying saucer descended over Tokyo and um, and more or less sent out a bunch of smaller sized saucers and uh, a bunch of people ended up killed as a result. And the the saucer has been hanging there in place for, I think, three years by the point where the story really picks up. And you have these two girls um, very much uh, with their various obsessions, with their ideas of like they're trying to study, you know, to take their high school, you know, uh, to get into their college exams or are they? They're not sure whether or not they want to. Like one of the girls, their father disappeared during the incident, and um, it's it's a really. I thought it was great. I mean, it's very much kind of a. Uh, on the one hand, it's kind of like, oh yeah, it's sort of it's sort of like Japanese manga Ghost World. I kind of get it, you know, with with both the strengths and the flaws in that because it's not. The, the girls are both, uh, like, like caught in that sort of same sort of land between realistic rendering and slightly more or more than slightly fetishized, depending on, on how you look at it. Mm. And, but the 9-11 stuff really pops because it is very much these kids living in under a level of fear and oppression and militarization um, that they are barely conscious of, I suppose. Yeah. And you see, in a way, there's a lot of lines of inference about how it 
has the way that is either warped them or the way that they've adapted to it as you can look at it and especially a lot of the it's pulled it's done at enough of a distance that you can also see the the adults reactions to it very much on the fringes are um kind of horrified and helpless about it or you know and there is a little bit in which Asano is like how much of the but how much of this is just regular life how much of this is a teenager like how much of it is the world is always seems to be ending and when you're a teenager you still have to try and either not pay attention to that shit because you're a teenager and you're obsessed with like your crush on your teacher or you know the, the you know the pop idol that you used to like that is you know three years ago that seems to have disappeared or it you know and how much of it is also your desire to reach out and break the world because of its unfairness is again how much of that is inside the people and how much of that is actually a, an active reflection of the world sounds all really heady Needless to say, with a title like that, it's actually all pretty funny and just beautifully drawn and observed, but also a little, it's strikingly, um, disquieting. So I, I really thought it was, it was a great little book. And again, probably made it very easy for me to push a lot of the, um, these weird, like, Again, walking out of Infinity War and being like, wow, that was kind of an amazing sort of thing to watch and experience, and it was a lot more fun than I was expecting it would, and it was kind of like the closest I'm ever going to get to having like a big Marvel summer annual in in movie form, you know? And yet at the same time being like, man, there's a lot of weird shit that you have to swallow <laughs> along with that, you know? So... There is, and also it's a lot of, um, at least in the Marvel thing, it's a lot of weird shit I don't think anyone ever really acknowledges. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, mm-hmm. the, the Marvel movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is amazingly... Um, Unchallenged? Oh, I don't... Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, a military-industrial complex worshipping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it is like you know it's it's everyone belongs to shield or a shield adjacent thing mm-hmm. you know or or there's some and I know that people are going to be like no they don't there's like you know Luke Cage and Iron Fist and Ant Man and everything but they all sign up when like basically they're asked <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and there's there's no real qualms about it and there's no real questioning of it and there's no real. Uh, morality mm-hmm. that questions it, you know? Right. Well, because I think there's a little bit of the... Um, to me, there's t- two of the factors are... One factor is is that I think that the movie makers themselves are like... it's It, it would be like uh, the whole... the. If you have this many superheroes, like, it sort of starts being like, is it vigilantism? You know what I mean? Like, where I think that the, the whole idea is like, by tying them into sort of like these special super deputy type situations, it plays into a, um, you know, it kind of, again, it sort of heads a problem off 
at the pass before it even, you know, before the, the horse is even out of the barn. But also, I remember reading, like, one of um, Bendis's early Ultimate Spider-Man issues where Nick Fury basically shows up and is like, yeah, you're going to work for us when you're of age because, you know, how can you not? Like, you've got special powers, you know, the United States government's interested in you. The only thing that's keeping you sort of out of that is the fact that you're, you know, a teenage kid and we're not, we're not going to mess with that. And I remember thinking like, wow, that is just so depressing and also kind of has this like weird, in, in, in a way I've never really wrapped my brain around, um, the way that the Marvel writers and Bendis is actually a prime one. The way that Bendis is, the way that Bendis feels about the government, you know what I mean, is kind of um, is probably a real important way to understand Marvel Comics, since since he was such an influential creator there, you know, for such a long time. But a lot of it just sort of felt like lazy kind of pivoting, you know, kind of like, oh, well, you know, now Norman Osborn's like the head of, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D., just the way that John McCain was going to win. Oh, wait, he didn't win shit. Okay, well, <laughs> we've got this whole thing that you guys are going to have to play out for a whole year where everyone knows that the government's corrupt and everyone's lost hope, even now at, at the point where liberals are, you know, crying with relief in the streets. We'll figure it out. We'll work it out. You know, like I've never figured out necessarily what their what their take is. Like their take really just seems to be like where's the hot button? How do we hit the hot button? You know, like let's just hammer that button. But in a way, it it does kind of make sense. It is kind of an important question. Like does Bendis really think that the government is all pervasive and the only thing that keeps you from being crushed is uh, essentially um, kowtowing to them, like, because there's no way that they will overlook you, you know, like, it it would seem to have some greater ramifications that, again, seem to end up apparently in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or maybe that's just a way that everyone seems to understand or think about the United States in a way that feels very different from the way that I think about it, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm. It's funny you bring up Bendis because part of me has been curious about how Bendis is going to fit in with the DC of it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that I think what you're what you're describing in his work is is right and is present. And I have always kind of chalked it up to Marvel mm-hmm. because it's present in other writers' work for Marvel. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and seeing Bendis go to DC and particularly do so in this political moment mm-hmm. makes me wonder if we're going to see something different from him. You know? Because he's at the same time, he's writing Superman, who is one of the more establishment characters. Yeah. I I have to tell you, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's funny. I think I, I this would be a good way to pivot into something that you had mentioned last week. Again, sort of to sort of the same um, slightly elliptical phrasing that you used for Infinity War. But let's let's talk about DC Nation issue zero and the and the Pegasus I'm guessing I'm there. guessing you've read it. Yes, yeah, I have. Uh, first of all, do you see what I was saying about? Uh, or do you at least see why I would appreciate Ben's Clark Kent? Yes, 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. There's mm-hmm. there's something really uh classically Clark Kenty about him. Mm-hmm. It helps of course that uh Jose Luis Garcia Lopez is Well see, there you go. Then it's kinda <laughs> like holy shit. Like, you know, part of me is like, Well yeah, I mean if this is what it takes to get Garcia Lopez on, on pencils, like, okay. You know, but as as a as a one shot, I don't know. I I was a, I was a little hand wringy about the Superman issue about well, the what Superman. What's interesting? Story there. Did did you read Action Comics Thousand? I did not. No. Action Comics Thousand has another Bendis story in there. Bendis uh, drawn by Jim Lee. Mm-hmm. And what I realized after looking at the solicits for the Man of Steel series is the Action Comics short seems to take place like. In issue four of Man of Steel, mm. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work around. I suspect there's going to be literally be a fight scene, mm-hmm. and they'll be like, and then at the end of the fight scene, and it'll be like like box going, you can read the fight itself in Action Comics Thousand. Right. Um, but it made me wonder how much of the the DC Nation story. Is going to take place like in between pages of Man of Steel again because it's not a story. No, at all. Right. It's literally like a scene. It's a cut scene. Yeah. Um, in a way that like the Tom King story is a story. Well, yeah. I mean, one, one of the things just, that's thrown off. Justice yeah. League story. The Justice League story is also, for my money, a cut scene. Yeah. If that. I mean, the the thing that I think is interesting is is that it's sort of. <laughs> I think they almost would have been better off, like, flipping the order of the stories because, because honestly, I felt like the Justice League stuff just felt like preview pages. Like, I know that it's like it Scott like Snyder. Yeah, it exactly. Like it's yeah. kind of like, these are preview pages. The, the, the Bendis scene felt like an entire scene complete with like the little reveal at the end being like a kind of stinger for it like okay and then and then the tom king joker story felt like a story and so on the one hand when i'm reading the book part of me is like you start off with the joker story it's like oh there's a story and it's like oh okay there's a scene and then by the end it's like okay it's just kind of shit being thrown at you and part of me is like for a preview book, like, you know, for something that I re- got for free digitally or if I had paid a quarter for it, like, I don't think I would have been that put out. But it, by the well, same time, it. It, it, it's like it is a free or, it, you know, a quarter, which is essentially free, right. like comic. Well, you but know, it, so it's one of those like, yeah, you can't be that upset. That's it. Like, I think that the, the um, free comic book day Avengers comic is terrible. So, oh, so who knows? Right. Um, I, I saw, I actually saw none of the free comic book day books and I was thinking like you could actually sort of review them now. Uh, but, but of course I'm once again sucking all the air out of the podcast. Uh, I agree, but part of me is sort of like for a quarter, if it started off with the Justice League stuff and it had been kind of like, oh, okay, like, I don't know. Again, it just kind of had that thing of like the organization from one way to another would have been kind of like, it would have built. It would have built, and it would have been like, oh, DC's kind of got their shit together, as opposed to the way that I finished the book, which is kind of like, DC is, is like, kind of on the edge of, 
kind of dropping all their plates. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I don't mean it in a negative way. It's just they got a lot going on, and that's clear. But just sort of somehow the simple thing of it is, is like by the time you get to the end, and I guess when I say the end, of course, it's got all those preview pages, gorgeous-looking preview pages of the Ryan Sook uh Steve Orlando title Firebrand is it Firebrand or is it called something else? No, it's else? It's, uh, it's called the Unexpected. Right, called the Unexpected. Yeah. So once you get to that point, part of me is like, I don't know. Like somehow it just kind of had that. It just I don't know. It 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 has that weird feeling of DC is putting out a product and is aware that they should be paying more attention than they are kind of I guess it just kind of felt like that. it was just kind of like uh, just what, a few fixes you know we're, like we're, we're sort of skipping around the bend and stuff but I want to say because I've read Justice League No Justice Issue 1 uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. that preview in DC Nation mm-hmm. is a really bad preview for the book itself interesting the book itself is far more coherent mm-hmm. uh, has a, a much stronger like last page thing mm-hmm. uh, than that preview would suggest and just sells the concept better yeah like it, it's a shame because the, the the DC Nation short looks great like I really sure. like Jorge Menes' uh, right. work me too but uh, but it does read incoherently yeah it, it literally, literally feels like it's like roll call, and that's the story. Yeah, it's roll call. You that's know? the story, but it's also ver- to me, it was also kind of this idea of like I totally want to go to DC and pitch an idea for a series called Dial L for Lobe, where the idea is is that you've got a special super dial, and when you dial it, you turn into Jeff Lobe, and then you're able to write your series that you're you have to write for dc and so every issue is like a different dc writer dialing it anyway i think you see where i'm going with this scott <laughs> snyder's crazy updated jeff lobisms that i felt were a little in in the in some of the metal stuff really kind of got put like way with a little too far to the forefront you know, and part of me is like, eh, like I'm gonna begrudge the guy. Like, part of me is like, that's not a crime. But at the same time, like, I didn't walk out of that being like, oh, I can't wait to pick up like the four Justice League titles or however the hell that works out. You know, exactly. Like, I, I'm not like I'm completely ready for the weekly Justice League book. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um. But but it's a shame because, like I said, like the first issue is so much stronger. Well, I I, I <laughs> like so much stronger I, it, to the point where you're like, oh, that that preview really was a trailer. Yeah. And like not any not a particularly great trailer either. Well, see, that's it. Cause, it cause just felt first, it just felt like preview pages. Like preview pages yeah. to me aren't even really like a trailer. You know what I mean? Because because I think there's sort of a rudimentary sense of sculpting. But I kind of maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is more of a teaser trailer. I don't know. Uh, the, uh, anyway, getting back to Decent Nation. Right. The the Joker story I think is good. Yeah. Like I, I think it it, it it works in a way that no other story in that book does. Yeah, for sure. Did you? And I forget. Did you think that it was going to? I was going to really hate it. I forget if there was if that was a thing. Uh, or do you even remember? No, I, no, I, I don't. I honestly don't remember. Did I not say something like you'll either love it or hate it? Maybe that's it, which makes sense, and and that does make sense. And honestly, it's much more to the sort of Joker thing that I quote unquote love. So yeah, no, I was um, I was pretty strong on it, which again brings us back to 
Bendis. Uh, yes. And the it's funny. I saw someone – I can't even remember who. I saw someone on Twitter basically be like, I've read two Bendis previews for Superman and I, they have made me not want to read Bendis as Superman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the, the one in DC Nation is – for my money, far preferable for to the preview in Action Comics, mm-hmm. which is plays to the worst of both Bendis and Jim Lee. Yeah, which I can imagine. And the result is like a weirdly ugly comic that does nothing but has people shout at each other. Because <laughs> it literally, well, that's just it. When Bendis writes fight scenes, it literally turns out to be like people fighting and shouting things. Yeah, yeah, you know. And it'll be like, suck on this! <laughs> you know, and you're like, okay, sure, I, I, I guess. All right, yeah. You know? Um, whereas I feel that there was, there was a lot I liked about the DC Nation uh, thing, but there's also, like, the Superman of it was what I didn't like. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I liked the newsroom stuff. Right. I liked Perry White. I liked Clark Kent. I like. Like, it felt like um, journalists, for want of a better way of putting it, in, in, a, in a way that I, I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know like what you the, mean. The super, mm-hmm. But, like, the Superman stuff of it, right. where it's like, no, Superman did this. I was like, I, yeah, but that, I mean, like, that's completely, uh, it feels surplus to requirements in mm-hmm. a Superman story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Which is like, oh, this this is this is maybe a little concerning. Yeah. No, I I actually thought that um, thinking about it, there were. I I agree with you. I sort of feel like if there was, you know, if Bendis had like stepped in and was basically kind of like, yeah, I'm writing a series called The Planet that is that is about all of these characters, like almost a Gotham Central sort of situation, right? except Clark Kent is a character in there and everyone is, I think I would be really down with it. And even just the fact that Bendis has a... Which is something that I feel that Bendis sometimes does not bother to put into his scenes, which is he actually does come up with that sort of very nice twist in which, you know... uh Perry is basically like, Clark Kent, great, great, good stuff. That's amazing. Like, you people got to do it like this. What's wrong with you people? And then later pulls him into the room. Is like, why are you writing garbage? That was just terrible. And I thought that was, that was really, I, I was like, oh, this is great. Like, there's a setup and a payoff and a twist and a thing. And I, and in yeah, that I, sense. I, and I like, I like the Perry of it all. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he comes, he's a, comes across as someone more than the cartoonish Great Caesar's Ghost character. That he has been for years at this point. Well, I, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't followed the rest of it. Part of me is a little worried that it's, it, it, it's, it's like, it seemed a little cartoony to me at the same time. I sort of, but I also appreciated a, I appreciated that it was done in the sense of Clark more or less being like, God, just shut up, shut up, shut up. You know, like, I do think that there's a little bit in which, like, yeah, maybe if if Bendis has, and I, I worry that this might be giving him too much credit, but a way in which he looked at the Silver Age Superman stuff, you know, and was kind of like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of shit that's going on about workplace anxiety in, you know, pre-John Byrne, maybe even post-John Byrne 
uh, Superman stories, and that's actually kind of a fertile ground for a lot of different reasons, I think I'd be down with it. But, I mean, this is the problem, Graham. I do think that Superman is... I don't know. You know, it's just, it's, 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 I, cause I'm not paying attention, but it sort of felt like, oh, here we are doing, doing a reboot, and here's kind of our way, like, here's Bendis's way of, like, taking these characters and making them work. And part of me is like, I sort of feel like part of how you make these characters work is you just stick with a take for longer than six years that doesn't then <laughs> be wiped out, you know, the next time someone steps in. You know, because it, otherwise it just kind of does get to that thing of everyone stepping in being like, okay, here's what I got. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I, it, it was, I have to say, as someone who has not read Bendis in a while, it was stronger work than I expected from him in some ways. It seemed a little more focused and directed than what I remember, but at the same time, I still, it wasn't enough to make me be like, oh, either A, I'm, I'm in the tank for this and I gotta pick this up, or B, um, like, this is what Superman needs. You know what I mean? I'm going to, uh, and I think I've, I've done this already in the podcast, uh, speak it in defense of Bendis and say that, like, I was genuinely surprised how much I liked his Iron Man. No, and I get that. And honestly, you and uh, a variety of people actually said that um, you thought that uh, his work was strong. You know, and there are, there are people like, you know, like, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, like, David Uzumeri and his... And, uh, he's, he's, he's also been really in the tank for Bendis in the sense of, of, you know, for the last couple of years in a way that seems like not just, you know, in slobbering fanboy mode. So maybe I really just do have to go back and tackle his Iron well, Man or go back. Well, I, I went, I had to go back and tackle, I had to go back and tackle his Iron Man because I was in the same boat as you. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember, I think the last time I'd really paid attention to Bendis was his Guardians of the Galaxy, which I remember just being, like, a, a mess. Mm-hmm. Amazingly sloppy, amazingly unfocused, um, and never quite getting to a point, never mind the point. Mm-hmm. And so I did just step away. Actually, it's not true. His X-Men as well. His X-Men I also paid right. attention to yeah. well. And I was like, I, like... I, I'm sure you're going somewhere, but fuck if I know where it is, right. or if I'm going to stick with you for this journey because you seem to be all over the place. Mm-hmm. But his Iron Man, um, maybe because he knew he was leaving or whatever, mm-hmm. um, it 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 seems more focused and with more to say mm-hmm. than I think Ben has, has felt in a long time. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, which is, which is great. I should, I should check it out. And, and I do have a thing, like, part of me is like, eh, yeah, maybe I'll, I will pick up his Superman stuff and, and kind of roll for it and see how it goes. But at the same time, part of me is like, I, 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 I don't know. I feel like the Superman, the, the rebirth Superman stuff was getting to, was starting to feel like it was gelling into a thing that I think people were starting to, respond to or at least i guess believe in as a thing as the paradigm and that's what's what's very funny is i i did like a massive reread of that Mm -hmm. uh and 
the Superman book, not Action Comics, but Superman, mm-hmm. the Beats Massey stuff. Mm-hmm. I it, when you read it like on mass, mm-hmm. was this like amazingly staggeringly repetitive book that actually went nowhere? Oh, interesting! Wow, <laughs> I mean, you read it like monthly, or, or I guess mm-hmm. it was twice monthly. Mm-hmm. Um, like no, you're like, hey, Superman, and then you read it on one, you're like, I get it. He's worried about his kids. <laughs> he's wor- okay, I get it. He's worried about his kids. He's worried about his family. Yeah, he's worried about his kid. Okay, I get it. Yeah, his kid's really cute. Yeah, he's worried about his kid. Okay, right. sure. Uh, okay, he's worried about his kid. I've got... Okay. Yeah, he's worried about his kid. And there's like 45 issues of that. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I feel like, wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of Superman wor- is worried about his kid. Right. But again, you read it twice monthly, and you're like, ah, you know, Superman, hey. And Superman kind of works in that, like, worried about his kids. Because, of course, Superman's everyone's dad. Do you know what I mean? Right. You're like, yep. like it's Superman is caring, and he's a family, and that's great, and I'm totally on board. And then you read it, uh, like, as a, as a winner, and you're like, oof. Right. Oh, yeah. oh I see. Um, <laughs> I also read all the, the, the action comic stuff, all Dan Jurgen's action comic stuff. Right, and? Uh, and uh, it's fine. Oh, nice. That's that's a rousing recommendation. Right? No, that's what I mean. Like it's it's um, it's very Dan Jurgens. Mm-hmm. Dot 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 question mark. Right. He's he's in his own way he's challenging a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But he's also the man who wrote the Death of Superman. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And and that's. Like weirdly, he manages to overshadow his own run. Hmm. It, it's it's a it's a very strange experience, but it's also it's definitely meat and potato superheroes. You know what I mean? Like I could I could see why it had an audience because it's it's you know here's Superman, he's gonna punch some bad guys and then he's gonna say something corny and then every now and again another superhero is gonna appear. There's a lot of also, but what about Krypton? Well, yeah, right. We'll see. Krypton, that's it. Yeah. Nowhere. Yeah. Perhaps because he's taken off the book, I don't know, but it it literally was nowhere. I'm well considering how much of the what about Krypton stuff seemed tied to the Mister Oz stuff, which seemed which of course goes back to like Johns's run. Like there there was it is explicitly tied to Doomsday Clock. Yeah, which is tied to Doomsday Clock. There's there's a bunch of there's a bunch of stuff there that I think the other thing that was kind of rough about about the Superman stuff. I mean, and I'm not I'm I'm not a Jurgens fan, and frankly it was interesting when I tried picking up a couple of issues, I'm like, wow, Jurgens has actually lost some of his nuance as a writer. I <laughs> this is I didn't think that was a thing you could do. So but I for myself, I was just like there, I don't know. Sometimes there are those books that kind of have a like whiff of editorial fiat, you know. Like, and Superman kind of, in part because of this stuff continuing to go on across multiple writers, like really kind of had this thing of like, I get the sense you really gotta, if you were gonna take the Superman book, you had to take the the Superman editorial mandated. You know, flight path, which why well, I, I action comics, I, I feel is one hundred percent that book. Yeah, and I also think that Dan Jurgens, for his sins, mm-hmm. is uh, really into that. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that he is, a, as a creator, is someone who's like, no, like, I'm working for the team. Well, see, which makes sense, because, again, when he did Death of Superman, it's as part of Superman was, like, a group editorially driven, you know, across all the titles to allow for all that crossover, like, really was... That, that was, that was the way DC was playing in the days, and I think, yeah, Jerkins really, it did, did well by it, and vice versa. So I can see, you're right, where he'd be like, yeah, no, absolutely, I'm totally down with this. So, uh, but at, yeah, at the same time. Uh, dude, I gotta say, Batman issue 46 was not. I've got other comics oh, that, to talk that, about, that, but that I'm not gonna. That was the one that I was going to say that, that I thought you'd hate. Yeah, good call. Good call. That was terrible, I thought. So, I don't know. You know, part of me is like, uh, I don't know. It, like you said, it, it, not only, I mean, it, it went, to me, it was that kind of like, oh, this has gone a little too far. You know what I mean? Like, this is a, um, you know, the idea of like, yeah, you, you know, you're like, yeah, Booster Gold was never that in, incompetent. And I'm like, almost no human being in the history of ever has been that incompetent. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a oh, way yeah, no, in it, which... It's definitely, it's definitely ramping up the, um, because the plot demanded it. Of it all. Well, I mean, because the plot demanded it, but also because King is going for laughs at various points. Like it is, and, and before what, it goes what is wrong, King actually going for in this storyline. Well, see, that's I, the thing. And that's the thing. I, I'm really saying that as someone, yeah. I, I like, I like the storyline. I'm enjoying it. Like I said before, I'm really glad it's only three parts. But I have no fucking idea what the point of the storyline is. Uh, Other than it's waggy, you know. I, I, honestly, I mean that's I, that's it. I think there's a bunch of stuff where King is. How do I put it? I feel like it's very much the sort of book that you would write when you are. Um, you're trying. You're you're getting ready to change gears a little bit. Coming up on fifty. And honestly, it makes sense that kind of like the King who wrote Batman Elmer Fudd is kind of like. I want to do something that is almost almost like Batman Fudd in the way that Batman Fudd simultaneously plays with the noirness and of course deeply ridiculously undercuts it. Like I feel that King is actually trying to strike that same level with I would say that Arguably, a kind of um, a, a much more it could be argued incisive sort of piss take on the on the Alan Moore influence on superhero comics. Much you know, much more so than well, I, I don't know because I'm not reading it. But whatever Johns is doing in Doomsday Clock, I feel like King is very much like okay. I am going to do like because he he clearly he shouts out the for the man who has everything really early in at the, like the end of the first issue, and I think it's on the one hand it's germane to King's interests to sort of posit that idea of 
you know, there's a grim and gritty fantasy world, but all it does, but it actually reinforces how important and good the current status quo is. Um, that's, that's a thing that I can see King very much actively wanting to push against and kick against because the idea of the current status quo is something that I feel, I'm starting to feel is something that King wants us, wants to, wants to upturn. That's the, the apple cart that I think that King is interested in, uh, in, in overturning in Batman and I would argue in Mr. Miracle and I think possibly in a lot of his comics going forward as a way of sort of challenging kind of that American fear of change that seems endemic in the culture now is by positing that that sort of shit doesn't play you know that that the fantasy world reinforcing the status quo isn't going to pan out but I think there like I said I also feel there's a way in which he's very much tackling the idea of Alan Moore's like oh here's a darker universe that's even darker than the real world that makes you appreciate it and King is like, yeah, and I'm just going to make that ridiculous. I'm just going to make that stupid, and it's going to have booster gold and a lot of punchlines. But, but I feel like, for myself, having presented that, you know, Potemkin village of a defense, I, or a straw man, arguably, I, I, part of me is like, yeah, the idea that you're going to, like, rescue Catwoman, have her say nothing but meow in there, and then she begins hissing and hacking off fingers at the end, I was like, this isn't even, like, false jeopardy, you know what I mean? Like, this is just Garth Ennis on ketamine, you know? And it doesn't mean anything at all to him or to us or to anyone except poor Tony Daniel, who's like, this is great. I'm, like, this is the story I, this is what I've been trying to get at all these years, you know? Poor Tony. Poor Tony. What, what's What's funny is that your defense of it, as you called it, did make me think that you like. Did sound like you liked it more than you actually do. Like I feel that you were you're you're presenting an argument in favor of it. I, as the person who is enjoying it to an extent, would instead just say it reads to me like the work of someone who is writing too many comics. <laughs> Could be. I mean, it could be. I just don't think that that, uh, for whatever reason, that's not how it. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of that in that maybe that 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 King's trying for a tone that he's he's not landing, you know. But also, it feels like it should be an issue, and it's three, Jeff. Yeah, but I mean, I feel that way about a lot of King stuff. I mean, I, I, it does this this feels. Ex- extended in a way even by the other stuff stuff, yeah in in a way that the other stuff hasn't like this feels like it's it feels like it's a one issue joke yeah and you know especially the way it ends i'm sure there's going to be some attempt at poignancy in the final part Mm -hmm. but i am not here for that (laughs) right yeah no i you know yeah like given everything else that's happened i i I feel it will come across as cheap Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm well, uh, yeah, I think that's a safe bet because again, it all kind of comes across as cheap. I mean, no, that's, that's why. But there's know. a difference between cheap uh, comedy and cheap poignancy. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like, I think cheap 
comedy has a value in a way that she poignancy doesn't. Uh, yeah. Comedy isn't as tacky, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, no, but I mean, like, you're not expecting a, like, comedy ultimately cares about the laugh, and poignancy, of course, cares about the emotion. If you get to the cheap part of emotion, then you're just kind of, it's just sentimentality, you know? So I see what you're saying. Whereas cheap comedy at least is a laugh, in theory, if it's done well enough. I personally think that, again, it's just, it's, it seems, it seems very misjudged. I'm and I'm sorry that I gave you any impression that I was enjoying it, other than the fact that. Well, no, no. Here's the thing: you weren't apart from your defense of it. Yeah. Like your defense of it, like was convincing, even though you had already prefaced it by saying you didn't like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I I I put thought into things I don't like, Graham. It's 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 hard to believe, but it's true. I feel like we should then, like, roll into something else you didn't like. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I have to say, I was very split on your Deadpool issue one. On the one hand, I thought that it was uh, lovely and great that they let Al Ewing do, like, his sort of choose-your-own-adventure comic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that they turned it into sort of the later stage choose-your-own-adventure stuff that's more like a literal RPG thing where you're like rolling dice and you can win or lose encounters or whatever. At the same time, I am curious to see if it's really going to work for me. Cause you know me, I'm, I'm a, it's just a formalist, you know, it's a, it's a, it's just a formalist wet dream to have that sort of thing done. And Ewing's very funny. I also feel like if I hadn't seen like his absolutely brilliant choose your own adventure uh dread comic story from a few years back yeah maybe i i would be more wowed i think also there's a way in which um i don't know we'll see we'll see how it pans out one of the things that i thought was really funny was that um you know, you sort of keep a score sheet with your character, and this was all really interesting to do digitally, which I won't bore you with, but I have to give Comixology and the people at Marvel credit, is is that they had to lay out that issue such that because it's broken down by your jumping from panel to panel, they more or less had to make every panel its own page so that you yeah, could navigate which, which to is, it. Yeah, which is super interesting. I read it digitally as well. Yeah, and I, I thought that they did a, an excellent job at that, which was great. And I even took a little, um, you know, photo screenshot of my character sheet so that I could write down items and keep track of my <laughs> my sad score, my bad score. And I thought that it was really funny that I'm apparently I have to like I'm going to get issue two next week, but the next issue I'm actually reading slash playing is issue three. So I thought that sort of thing was all very, there was a lot of it that was very fun. And yet at the same time, it we'll see if it gets to the point where it, and I have a lot of faith in, in Al cause he's terrific, but the first issue, perhaps unsurprisingly, didn't really pay off as its own thing for me, um, and I didn't find myself enjoying it as much as I thought that I would. I am 100% on the same page as you. Wow, that's a shocker. Uh, I I appreciated it. I'm not sure if I liked it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I thought that formally it's fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
But I also, I'd be lying if I said I finished it. I was like, I can't wait for the next issue. Exactly. I felt uh, you know? absolutely the same. Yeah. I, w- I was like, yeah, that that was well done. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you finish anything going, that was well done, there's something missing. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I think the other thing that I think is kind of interesting to me is kind of the, you know, what I always think of as Matt Groening's paradigm, which he's like, you know, why is it that the French are funny, sex is funny, and comedy is funny, but there are no funny French sex comedies, you know? And I sometimes I'm like, Al Ewing is really funny. I find Deadpool really funny. I was kind of like, I don't really find Deadpool, Al Ewing's Deadpool, that funny in this issue. But admittedly, it's such a, it's such a weird. It's yeah, it's not something that necessarily makes it easy. Yeah, because I mean, because again, it's it's having to do double. It's it's having to do double duty in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, so but then again, I I, I think you like Deadpool more than me. That is true. I would have to say that is that is almost certainly the case. Um, and uh, let me see. I one thing, the two two things that I should should mention very briefly before. Well, wait, actually, yeah, we got we got. Ten minutes before before the buzzing kicks in. Should I? Should, yeah. So let me talk. <laughs> I'm it, like, do it. Okay, I will. I caught up on a bunch of stuff that I'd fallen behind on, and in some cases it was just like two or three issues, like Snagglepuss Exit Stage Left issues three through five, which were really interesting to read, kind of all at a go, in part because. Every issue had this weird, like, me reading it and about halfway through going like, Jesus, I don't think I like this. This is kind of contrived bullshit. And then by the end of the issue, somehow being, like, weirdly, deeply moved about different things and pieces. So I thought that that was kind of amazing. Like, and also in that weird, like... I would be deeply moved, and then I'd pick up issue four, and then by the middle of the issue, I'm like, I'm just exasperated. There's no, I have no patience. This is kind of like really bullshit, easy targets. And then there would be something else that would just sort of seem like, oh, that's genius, or wow, that's really clever. Um, Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. interesting, though. I don't think that I like it nearly as much as Flintstones, and I don't think that maybe I shouldn't I guess but you know like I don't think it's trying to do the same thing at all for one thing but it is interesting how much I found myself whipsawed back and forth over the the course of those couple of issues um are you still digging it liking it I am actually really I'm actually really far behind it's possible that I haven't even read issue three um but one of the reasons for that, there's a multiple reasons. Like I fell behind on almost everything because the Eisner reading. Right. Um, but another reason is with the first couple of issues, I had the similar like I'm not digging this as much as Flintstones, mm-hmm. and there are moments where I'm like I'm not sure I'm digging this at all. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. To the point where it's like I've had it, and then there will be some little moment that really kind of that kind of pops for me. And kind of gets me yeah. back on the train. So I'll be okay. Well, I'm glad. I'm sort of really dramatically relieved to hear that that's the case. But um, it's fascinating because, of course, I always feel like I want to try and strike the balance when we're talking about 
stuff that we read regularly. Like, but I don't want it to be like I read Walking Dead and it was The Walking Dead and there were zombies because of Walking Dead. You know what you I mean? Love like, Walking Dead, well, I, no, well, no, I know, and I think, but I think that, that how do I put it? Like, sometimes I'm curious if the listeners are like, why aren't they talking about X? Is it just that it's taken for granted that they're reading it, or did they just hate it and drop off and not mention it? Because I feel like I sometimes do that and I and then feel kind of guilty. Because it starts with me being like, you guys have to go read Blort, because Blort is the most amazing thing ever. And then I'm kind of like, hope hope no one asks me about Blort, because I haven't looked at Blort in like two years. Similarly, uh, Platinum End, which I was, I think, something like six chapters behind. Like, I literally read from chapters... 24 through 30 over the course of uh, a couple of I just want to say it I don't even, I want to say a day, like yeah it took a couple of days but I think honestly I just piled through them in you know like maybe 2 hours or something as you may recall Platinum End is the um the 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 current manga series uh from the Death Note team that mm-hmm. um I was pretty coolish on and then yeah surprisingly so yeah well because i was kind of like oh this seems like i mean part of me was like i was amused by the super cynical um kind of like oh you know we're we're gonna this is like the death notes death note like this has so much impossible amazing ridiculousness that's like death note squared and then kind of ended up being this weirdo like really you guys just want to do a superhero comic with it? That seems a little weird. And then, but honestly, leading up to issue 24, they had actually had a pretty decent little um, showdown with the, the big supervillain, and it did precisely and exactly what you would want in a superhero comic in a way, in that it was a decisive fight, that also at the same time took a couple of um, important players off the board such that the characters who are the quote-unquote heroes of the book are now much more on their own and have to be self-reliant. Basically, they got rid of the mentor figure that was 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 a really a, a kind of a necessary character in the early parts, but discarding him was a smart move. So issues 24 through 30 is basically the establishment of the revised status quo and kind of a revamping of the 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 next phase in the storyline, and um, and I liked it. Uh, a, a lot of my problems with uh, early parts of Platinum End had a lot to do with the just sort of the blatant cynicism of the storytelling and particularly the 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 way that the the main characters operated interestingly enough whether it's because i had a huge chunk of time away from it or the nature of things being what they are the re going back into the narrative i found the things that were very um, cynical takes uh, for the characters to be suddenly more important. Um, it, 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 like things that I was emotionally invested in preserving as the, as the issues went on. All of which is to say, 
Platinum End is rocky. It's no crazy, absolutely batshit insane, but assured um, sort of storytelling that you see uh, it saw from Death Note. But part of me is like, at this point, if you came across the volumes in a library, I don't think... I don't think that they would necessarily feel like the incredible waste of time <laughs> that I originally thought I was <laughs> locked there into the for the first. Way. Yeah. There's the best way of, of telling me to read it. Yeah. If you found it in a library and therefore didn't spend money, yep. it's not a complete waste of time. It's not. Well, cause the first, the first couple of volumes do feel like a big waste of time for me. And I was buying them chapter by chapter and still am. And then when things change up, I think there's ways in which part of me is like, particularly for you, Graham, I I feel really confident saying that it is definitely, I cannot really imagine it being your bag, even once it picks up. But I do think that there are certain people for whom um, it will resonate, uh, I think, uh, particularly as the later volumes go on. You know, and in part because I do think that um, uh, Oba and Obata are, for the most part, pretty decent professional storytellers, and so a lot of the the big final fight showdown stuff that that takes up like the five or six chapters before issue twenty four um, were were pretty were pretty gripping in in just a kind of here's how the story is told here's how the stakes are escalating kind of way mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know so so worth mentioning i can't say that i'm fully on board but i but i no longer feel like quite the enormous asshole for continuing to buy the buy the issues so there's that <laughs> like you said, that's definitely that's definitely something, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Um, so, and then speaking of which, uh, feeling like an asshole, Vampire Tales Volume Three. I finally finished it. I've read all three volumes of the Black and White Vampire Tales things, and some of it is it is just a slog. But there was actually the once. Don McGregor left um, Morbius finally, and Doug Moench came in. Like Moench, Moench's uh, first story is really incredibly. Moench's story is unbelievable, dis- believably disposable. But the next one, where Morbius is, um, ends up hiding out on a cruise ship on its way to England and then gets recruited to fight the Brotherhood of Judas, which is basically the vampires that run England and Parliament and everything. I was kind of like, well, shit, yeah, this kind of has, this this story has <laughs> like, it all. I, this is all I want. Right, exactly. Um, I, I'm always impressed by how much Doug Moench is kind of, on point in Vampire Tales, much more so than a lot of the his other um, anything for a buck brethren. Like I, I finished up a Jerry Conway story that was god awful and padded out to ridiculous lengths. And the whole gist of it is is it's about a vampire who's being hunted in like a, a like a, a neighborhood in New York, and in order to escape detection, he hides himself as a blind man, which because he beaten up a blind dude earlier in the story because he's an evil vampire son of a bitch and so he basically ends up 
disguising himself as a blind guy. And because of that, the heavy dark glasses that he wears keeps him from seeing that the sun's out. And so he walks out and bursts into flame at the end of the story. And I was like, that was 11 pages for that payoff, Jerry Conway, where there's actually a story later called Hobo's Lullaby that is absolutely everything you would want in a story called Hobo's Lullaby in a book called Vampire Tales. Because, of course, Graham, I'm saying, is it vampire hobos? Yes. It's First, it's hobos versus vampires, and then ultimately, it's like one hardworking bull in the railroad yard and a vampire hobo who's king of the road and does not want to, you know, his whole thing is freedom, and therefore he's able to resist and help defeat the other vampires who have fallen under, the vampire hobos who have fallen under the king of the vampires. It's awesome. And if you're wondering, does that vampire hobo climb onto the back of a train and lie there peacefully, and then as sun rises, he bursts into flame, the sweet flame of freedom? He does. And it's great. So, um, and beautifully drawn by young Montano, uh, who I've never seen before or since, but, uh, great. It's a Graham? Jeff? Uh, I've been thinking about this, by which I mean, like, when we hung up, I feel A, bad, because I, once again, am just ranting, ranting, ranting. But B, I've been thinking about this as well. Graham, if you had the opportunity to cast the Marvel Cinematic Universe version of Hawkeye, but you could only do it with actors named Jeremy, who who would you pick? <laughs> I could literally think of Jeremy uh, Renner and Jeremy Piven right now. Is there other Jeremys I should be thinking of? Jeremy Irons? No, I, I'm going to IMDb right now. And Ron Jeremy. Jeremy? Yeah, let's, let's check it out, because those were just the ones that came to me off the top of my head. Course. Jeremy, I'd I'd cast Jeremy Davis. Uh, ooh, who's Jeremy Davis? I'm got I got to get over to IMDb. Jeremy Davis is uh he's apparently been in Saving Private Ryan. I know him. Oh as yeah, Jeremy the, Davies right from from Lost and stuff, right? Yes, I was gonna say I know him as the skinny fuck from Lost. Skinny fuck I, from Lost. Was he also in CQ? He was. He was the main character in CQ, which is why I actually know him. Yeah. Oh CQ, uh, yeah. that is so funny. Yeah, yeah. I I love CQ and I shouldn't. It's not good, but I love CQ. Uh, it's uh, so it. There's so much to like about it. It's a shame it never really quite holds up. But there's I, there's a lot of it's it's really such a labor of love in a lot of ways. That movie, I, I, and in other ways, such a labor. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Uh, but yeah, that's who I'd covered. I, I'd cast Jeremy Davis. Jer- Jeremy Davies. Uh, Jer- Jeremy. Why what about you? Well, I was thinking about it. I really was. Part of me is like, because I kept thinking like, wow, Jeremy, Jeremy, because I was like, Jeremy Renner, that just, it didn't, I kept coming back to Jeremy Piven, and I'm like, would I cast Jeremy Piven as, as Hawkeye? Like, part of me is like, on the one hand, because, you know, I mean, he's, he's watchable, you know what I mean? Which is that thing, but he's just, it, but on the other hand, it's just kind of not, the the pain of having Jeremy Piven in something it would be tough. Then I was thinking like, well, Jeremy Irons would be great. I mean, because of course he's like way too old, but that might he's actually Alfred. work. Come on. Well, who cares? Like, I mean, now he's Alfred. Like, <laughs> Not I mean, sure. At this point, 
Who cares? I mean, it's that's it. Commissioner Gordon is like J. Jonah Jameson. Like, you know, Thanos' cable. Like, the Human Torch is fucking I, I, Captain America. Like, it's all, it's all I, bullshit. I do love, I do love Thanos' cable in the same summer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is pretty great. Also, he's Jonah Hex. Oh, right. And he's Jonah Hex. Right, exactly. Which everyone's going to forget because... Why the fuck would you remember that? So yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't, and when they finally cast, like, Nicolas Cage's Galactus in the MCU or whatever, oh my god, actually, I have to say, Nicolas Cage's Galactus might be pretty awesome, so... But, uh, yeah, so Jeremy, who's Jeremy Sisto? I feel like that name rings a bell. Uh, Jeremy Sisto is in oh, shit. He's You're the like, brother in Six Feet Under. He might have been. That's who he is. Yeah. I was like, he's in an HBO show. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He also might have been an interesting choice for Hawkeye, I have to say. Uh, who would you want? It was not named Jeremy. Like, if you genuinely were choosing anyone for Hawkeye, who would you want? I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it, it is very much like the, the, cause, Hawkeye. I mean, that guy. You know what I mean? Like, Marvel Cinematic Universe Hawkeye is not really like Hawkeye in any way that I'm at all invested no, not, in. No, he's, not, he's, not in the slightest. Yeah, he's, but, he, but he could have been more like him. Well, sure. Absolutely. And in that point, who would I have cast as Hawkeye? Like, someone that would have been closer to, you know, the clip clint barton hawkeye i don't it would have to be some dude who you know was kind of blonde with good comedic timing um maybe it didn't you've, have to be you've chosen blonde. owen wilson it's an unusual choice holy shit that would be the best no i don't know if that would actually work but it would kind of be great he kind of could be a kind of a great what about luke wilson okay yeah, you know, I gotta tell you, Luke Wilson never quite is, is never quite my Wilson of choice. He's never my go-to Wilson, you know. Who is your Wilson of choice? Is it Daniel Wilson, writer of Robopocalypse? I think it would probably be Flip Wilson, and then maybe Owen Wilson, uh, and then Owen's up there. Owen's up there. I'm, I'm surprised. Yeah, no, I, I've I've enjoyed a lot of stuff by Owen Wilson, and I don't think. I don't think I've enjoyed a lot recently. Like I've kind of like counted him out, but up to a point, I think I think he would have been fine. Jesus, let me think here. Like there's got to be like a good like you know what? Maybe I would have gone. Maybe I would. I mean, he's working too hard and doing double duty or triple duty. But honestly, I th- I feel like I feel like Chris Pine probably could have done an okay um, Hawkeye. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I can, I can see that. Yeah, you know, a little bit of horse's ass, but also good comedic timing, and you could pivot in a couple of different ways with it, you know. So yeah, I I think I think that seems like sort of a cheap cheap choice because the the idea is like you want to try and get some sort of like good up and comer. Like, I don't know. I mean, would you pick the guy who played Sawyer, Josh? What's his name? Would you pick him as as like a as a Hawkeye? Like he wouldn't be a bad choice. I I probably wouldn't pick him as a Hawkeye, but I am. Still amazed that he did not have a bigger career than he he had after Lost. Yeah, what, what kind of happened with that? Like, what he's did on he do? some like fucking sci-fi show or something. Oh, is he? Okay, yeah. But, but just... it's like, how did that happen? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Like, he really was. He he, and he did. It wasn't. It wasn't like he. He ended up doing some pretty good work all throughout Lost. Like, even when it was, 
he sold me on a lot of his stuff. Yeah, Josh Holloway. Like I, I would, I would throw Josh Holloway in there as as a. Uh, he could be a pretty decent. Because again, if I mean, it's almost typecasting, but you get a little bit of the con man Carney Barker angle in there. You know, who who would you cast him as now? Jesus, can can you stick him in there now? In in, in at, at you mean in at, the MCU? In the MCU, like who would who would I put him in as there? I don't know. I gotta say, I don't. I mean, my first my first thing, although he's too old. See, this is it. He's a little too old to do something like. And of course, the X Men universe is not in the MCU. But there's a way in which I was kind of like, not yet. Yeah, not yet, right? But but I was like, yeah, he could have been an okay Gambit, like like right after Lost, maybe. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think I think that would have worked. But hey, Channing Tatum's got that one locked up. If oh, they ever make the shit. film, yeah, <laughs> someone's clearly locked up. They had oh god, who was it? I think it was the, the CEO of Fox was talking about like you know what they're doing moving forward in, with the X Men movies. Mm-hmm. And he actually said, believe it or not, we're still trying to get Gambit made, which I think is so great that like the guy in charge of the studio is like, yeah, even I know that Gambit is a joke at this point. See, which is funny because I really would have thought that Deadpool would have given them the chance to completely... Uh, I think that should have gotten them to unlock and fast-track Gambit, which really makes me think that they are just in the fucking weeds. I do well, not... Gambit, Gambit's a fucking ass. Like, Gambit is, is the movie that keeps on losing directors. Well, see, that's it. I, I think that they're just so deeply fucked, and I can't imagine where or what the problem is, you know, in a way, but it's fascinating to me. I'll that tell you, just... Gambit... <laughs> You know what? Why? Why, why is that? Car- I, I, honestly, for me, I Gamma came in as I stopped reading X Men. Uh huh. So I've like I have absolutely no affection for him, mm. like whatsoever. But everything I learn about the character mm-hmm. seems ridiculous and not fun ridiculous, <laughs> but like. This is overly complicated. This is someone trying too hard. Ridiculous. You know, that could be. I personally think the the hardest problem about Gambit is that Gambit works best and most successfully as a counterpoint to Rogue. And so once you take Gambit out of that relationship and out of sort of the X-Men relationship where he can be kind of an irritant or a counterpoint, there's not much... um, it's hard to come up with a reason for him to sort of exist, but I also kind of feel that in the same way that some comic book character movie characters don't really seem to f- hit on their own in comic books, part of me is like, I think that sort of a, you know, f- sexy Cajun thief with special explodo powers, um can work like I really do think that it can work I just think that it has to be done in a way that you need to because you know what I mean like I'm like do the Thomas Crown affair with superpowers it's not that hard you know I think oh but you know that's not what they're going to do well no of course that's not what they're going to do like hey do you want to make Ocean's Eleven with superpowers and they'll be like I was thinking what if we bring in the Thieves Guild right 
Well, I mean, or even whatever it is. I mean, I think part of the problem from a lot from a lot of the the X Men movies and the Wolverine movies is the fact that it's it's never and maybe this is the reason, maybe not, but it's kind of like okay, like I want to do a Gambit movie, and the person's like terrific. You just also have to include Proteus, or you know what I mean? Like, there's always some <laughs> oh my weird, God, like, so hilarious. fucked up <laughs> thing. Like, hey, okay, here's your Gambit movie, but you also have to have Factor Three, right? And Changeling. Yeah, exactly. Like, and it's Lucifer. absolutely important. Yeah, yeah, you completely, completely. You know, I and see. It, well, you know what's terrible? Like, we're joking, and it literally was just like they're going to fucking include Juggernaut somehow, aren't they? Yeah. I don't know why, but I was like, it's going to be Juggernaut. Yeah. Juggernaut's going to be the fucking guy. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think I think whatever else is going on, there's just it's just some sort of thing. But yeah, I I you know, it just drives me crazy because part of me is like, yeah, the heist movie is such a successful genre. Like doing a superhero, doing a super powered heist movie seems to me like the sort of thing that you can easily sell or put across and i was and that I, what Ant-Man was supposed to be what yeah in a way in, in a way yeah i think so i mean i think it kind of is i don't remember my memories of ant-man are sort of like fond but i'm like yeah it is like heist, I, I, isn't it? this whole thing breaking into it memories of Ant-Man. No. it was fun it was on <laughs> dude i knew i shouldn't have given you that opening it was i, I it's it was good it was all right was it like I? I'm not joking. I genuinely remember as I seem to remember smiling when I watched it, and that's the extent oh of my, my memories of that. That 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 simply is the thing that you you clearly undervalue Michael Pena, and that is that is entirely to your detriment. So, anyway, this is this is great. I do rage in that sort of like join the army, see the navy kind of thing. I'm like yes. Tune in for our discussion of Avengers Infinity War, where we argue about Ant-Man for 45 minutes. <laughs> we, this, we, we were, I think we stayed true to the start of this podcast by getting wonderfully off topic the entire time. Yeah, it, that is probably true. You're I right. will just say this. At some point, I really hope you read the Avengers Free Comic Book Day issue. Uh-huh. Not the Avengers story, which is, how can I say, filler, <laughs> but... The Tanahasi Coast Captain America story. Oh, interesting. Uh, do you do do you wish to do you wish to uh, expound on that at any length, or is all it... all I will expound is uh, I am not a fan. Mm-hmm. I it it's kind of amazing how much just that I got to be like ten pages at most uh, story made me go. Oh, I guess I'm not going to be reading this book. Wow. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Oh. Uh, I was I was having a conversation with someone about it, and I was basically complaining that in my mind it is rehashing Secret Empire. Yes. And they they put forward the theory that Secret Empire is just the Cap story. The Cap story is Captain America either betrays America or is betrayed by America. And every every Cap uh, Captain America story is a variation on that. And if that's true, uh, I I loved Captain America as a comic like for years, and then that made me go, no, no, I don't want to read any of those stories anymore. Yeah, but see, but I don't think that that's entirely true. I mean, how do I put it? I feel like like those Cap stories are 
kind of the apex, like, you know, where it's like, yeah, you, you hit that note every so often, but like, you know, I think one of the things that I actually appreciate again in that weird kind of, it was all sorts of crazy shit. Um, so it's kind of hard to notice, but you know, Jack Kirby's Mad Bomb story is very much a Captain America story that is, um, where it's Cap is arguing, is fighting for Cap. He's fighting, but he's, Cap is fighting for America, but it's him versus the elites. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, there's that moneyed elite that is trying to overthrow America that Cap is fighting against. I, I think that's a pretty decent story. Um, I feel like, again, some of the stuff where one of the things why I thought that Brubaker stuff worked really well for such a good long time is he went back to the core of, you know, quote unquote Cap's original sin, which is the death of Bucky. And then he revisited that and really kind of made it about, you know, because it was sort of the one real hook that you had for Steve Rogers, the character. But like once you brought back Bucky, he was really able to bring back Steve Rogers as a character for a good chunk of that. And that that also really worked, I think, Um, you know, I mean, just just for my thing, even even the the admittedly the the Secret Empire stuff from Englehart is is great and amazing and it it is like cap versus america and cap you know betrayed by america and nomad and all that sort of stuff but i don't know i for myself i sort of feel like that idea i think the thing that's sort of a bummer about the tanahisi coates thing is is that reading some of his uh preparatory essay type stuff was kind of like yeah i'm trying to really write about captain america on sort of on the character's terms, which means writing about America on Captain America's terms. And part of me was like, I was like, oh, yeah. You know, part of me is like, oh, that sounds good, on, like, in theory. And then the more I, I sort of think about it, the more I think, like, it's probably more interesting if if Coates, I think, had figured out a way to write about Captain America in the scope of Coates's view of America, you know what I mean? And who knows, maybe that's where the whole secret empire stuff does come in. But I suspect that I suspect that I, I feel like they're, I don't know. I just don't, I, I, I see their point, but I sort of see where it's kind of that, um, that weird thing that happens with too many people who've read Robert McKee's story sitting down and writing um, writing superhero comics, which is the idea of like, you know, oh my God, the, the one Iron Man story that you have to tell is, you know, Tony Stark fighting the technology that he created. And at a certain point, you're like, just enough already. Like, that story has been told 15 different times why don't we tell a story where he is frustrated because he can't seem to have sex with a chick who's got a mask on her face? You know what I mean? Like, like let's get back to... Because Iron Man was a I, romance honestly, comic. Honestly, you say that and I'm like, you should read the Bendis run. <laughs> 
oh, is that a big chunk of things? Like, it does seem like I, I read, like, a Bleeding Cool thing where it was kind of like, oh, yeah, twist surprise, Dr. Doom impregnated someone, y'all. And I was like, I'm not reading this fucking book. <laughs> hey, all I'm saying is, if you want some Madame Mask shit. Yeah. No, 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 no. I know. Well, no, and see, that's great. It came in in the Fraction stuff, and it came in at the other levels. You know, Madame Mask is in there. I appreciate the fact that they've kept the eye on the idea that Iron Man was one of the more romance-based superhero comics. You know, that I think that's... I'm kind of always relieved that they did that, even as I've sort of sauntered away from, from the comics and, and not come back to them, you know? So, I don't know. Graham McMillan. So, uh, uh, you do know me. I'm right here. I do. Yeah. We do. We do a podcast quite often. <laughs> we just talked for like two and a half hours. Oh, you're right. I guess I do know you. You're right. What was I thinking? Uh, so yeah, Graham McMillan. Uh, is it is it time for closing? Is it time for closure? Are, are there other things? As Semisonic once said, "Closing time." Oh God! Wow. <laughs> uh Everyone, please write in into the comments and please come up with the next one-hit wonder that Graham should give a special shout-out to uh, at the end of our next podcast. I shit you not, closing time in particular reminds me of... Do you remember when I used to work at the, the telemarketing company in San Francisco? Yes. There was a a like tiny little like cafe place right beside it. Right beside it. Mm-hmm. And it's just... Closing time, I remember distinctly being there one morning and getting a bagel and it playing on the radio and me being like, this is the worst song that's ever been fucking <laughs> It's such a clear memory. <laughs> this is the worst. What the fuck is this song? Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, I get it. Of course, part of me is like, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of liked it. So, but of course, can't stand it now. But I, don't I was going to say, listen to it now and tell No, me no, no, no. Oh, Jesus, no. Like, seriously. That's, that is like, that's like in the island of Dr. Moreau, where it's like, yeah, just, just head on out to the House of Pain, Jeff, you know, which, Let's jump around. It. Jump around by House of Pain. That will never happen. That I feel very comfortable <laughs> saying that will never happen. I'll be like 98 fucking years old on my deathbed, and I'll hear that sort of eat, eat, and I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I, oh my god, that's so great. I, that's okay. We have to stop the podcast now because it's not going to get better from that. There will be show notes for this episode up at waitwhatpodcast.com. There's posts on the Tumblr, waitwhatpod.tumblr.com. There's a Twitter, at waitwhatpodcast. Jeff has a Twitter, where I swear to God, I hope he's going to talk much more about House of Pain. At LazyBastard, at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I have a Twitter, at Graham M, at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we are a Patreon-supported podcast, which means Jeff Lester is probably going to get through Patreon as quickly as I go through this outro today for no majorly apparent reason. Jeff! Yes, Graham. Well, so, listeners, as you know, uh, we drop more bombs than the Bible's got psalms. No, wait, is that it? Yeah! Oh, is it? <laughs> yes! <laughs> yes! Oh, my God! Listeners, when, before Jeff and I started recording, I was like, I am in a shitty mood. <laughs> I'm, I'm, 
<laughs> Jeff just doing that is meant to be like one. Is, you flipped it around, Jeff. You made it better. I appreciate that, Graham. I'm glad I could flip the script for you. So, uh, yeah, as you know, uh, we are a Patreon-supported podcast. We love all of our listeners because you are all awesome, and you manage to keep us motivated, and we're so grateful when you guys drop little uh, notes to us, either on the comments thread or emails or comments on either of our twiddler, Twitter twiddlers. Um, I don't know if you comments saw on our twiddlers. On our twiddlers, but you know, uh, Kathor Jensen was kind enough to, to throw us in a list of... Um, I- it was nuts. Yeah, of 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 right? his favorite comic book podcasts. Yeah, it uh, was that at the Verge. Where was that? Was that where was that? Uh, was I honestly Verge. can't remember. But, I, I I just remember reading through the list and being like, "What are we doing?" Yeah, here? no shit. It was like, <laughs> wow. Like he actually even made us sound like diligent or professional. So thank you, Kathor. You are you're you're pretty awesome. So it was, I was deeply humbled. Um, but uh, we are also humbled by the support that we get from the people at Patreon who occasionally feel like they can throw us some of their um, purple, wrinkly Thanos dollars. Uh, admittedly, there's <laughs> once Patreon takes their cut, it's half of them seem to suddenly disappear. But um, oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, was, right. Huh? Topical to come. Uh, why? Why SNL hasn't top tapped me to like write their news i just don't i don't get it um so yeah we're we're deeply indebted to you guys uh especially the kind crew at american ninth art studios and empress audrey queen of the galaxy uh for their continuing support of this podcast um also i should say i have been a mess as everyone knows for reasons uh, discussed on the podcast for good reasons. I am deeply, deeply, deeply behind on getting um, stickers. I don't think anyone's joined at the tote bag level in a while, but I'm really behind on getting stickers to a lot of um, uh, new donors, and I apologize and hope to get that rectified very, very, very soon. Um, uh, and so probably to you, you're like... Jeff Lester, I don't think you really appreciate my Thanos dollars, no matter how many of them are getting to you, and the other how many are actually crumbling into dust or leaves or leaf dust or whatever that was. And I'm like, that is not true. I really do. I'm just I'm just a human wreck. So thank you so much for your support. I apologize to you and to Graham and uh, probably to you a few people. Apologize to me. Well, I don't know. I mean, I might be. No. I might be costing you income. People could be like, you know what? Screw you guys. I was gonna give you money, but like, it's been two months. Yeah, I get no stickers. Shish. I don't know why, but your made-up hushing noises are always my favorite. Made up hushing noises, Graham. You're they, they welcome. Yeah. You're welcome, Jeff Lester. <laughs> hey, Jeff, you and I should have discussed this before we started recording. I have no idea when we're the next episode is. You know what? I don't know either. I don't know either. Cause... I do know it's a boxer building. Oh, is it? Oh, shit. I don't yeah. think I knew that. Oh, and you know what, Graham? People have said this, and I think they're absolutely right. We are going to be reading those annuals. We should also read 
that I know uh, the rest of the crossover. Everyone wants to read the rest of the Days of Future Present crossover. Oh no no no, that's not it. Uh, I mean that's maybe not it? that's probably. I, it. No, saw, no, no, I no. I've seen a couple of people suggesting we do that. That's true. People have been suggesting that. That makes sense. Other people have also suggested that we read the forty pages of Barry Windsor Smith's thing graphic novel that uh, that have been um, published online. Um, I saw that, and I'm of two minds, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind one is, sure. Mind two is, we didn't read, like, the Marvel 2 and 1 or the Thing Solo series like I did. Mm-hmm. But we didn't do it, in, we didn't cover it in Baxter Building. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. So, uh, I, for me, uh, I, I haven't looked uh, into it, and I totally see, but part of me is very much... Also, it's a comic, is the other thing. Yeah, well, maybe that's part of why I'm like, yeah, I'm down with this, because I just want it to end, Graham. No, 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 I don't know. I, it's You're right. I, well, got, let's I've, look into I've, it. Let's, let's at least consider it, I, and in the show notes, I will put in a link in case our fine listeners have, have not, even those our fine listeners who alerted me to this, um, uh, have, do not know about... So they can check it out and maybe let us know what they think. Yes, I think that's a good idea. Jeff, when are we recording next? Uh, I'm I'm so sorry you asked that. Let me see here. Uh, Shall we do it next week and uh, just go for four weeks in a row? I think that we might because you know what? I sort of want to take the – I do want to have that time off. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Okay, so let's, let's do it next week. Let's Come on. A week from now, another Baxter building. Wow. Okay, I'm I'm Are down for it. Are you ready? I I I would like to think that I am. Oh, ha, 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 ha. We're going to be doing annual Fantastic Four annuals, 19, 22, 23, and 24. Mm. And it's very possible I may also read the other chapters of Days of Future Presence, but you're not going to get me reading fucking all the other crossovers. Nope. I don't care that all of the evolutionary war showed up in Marvel Unlimited. Nope. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of funny, isn't it? I'm sort of like, yeah, I'm, I'm again, after referring to Infinity War as basically like reading a big Marvel summer annual, you know, and or event. Is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Part of me is like, yeah, maybe I, maybe I will. I think that might be fun. So yeah, let's shoot for that next week. Please join us. Um, Ram, do you want to sing us out? Listeners, thank you very much for spending your hard-earned time with us today. Maybe you're going to work and coming back from work. I mean, it's been a, like three-hour podcast, so sure. Maybe you've done that all week. Maybe you've been listening to us all week. Maybe we have been your accompaniment. And that means a lot to us. It means a lot to Jefferson Lester. It means a lot to me. Gramothy McMillan. <laughs> Gramothy works, sure. <laughs> what I want to really say is, bye! Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Didn't even see it coming. Well done. <laughs> <laughs>